Welcome in to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. I'm excited for today's show, folks. I'll tell you why. We have a very good show in store for you. I read an exceptional book this weekend, uh, finished it up today. Uh, it was a, a great book called What the Dead Know. Our guest is Barbara Butcher. And Barbara has had a very interesting life, to say the least, to say the least, in that she had one of the most interesting careers I think you can have if you are interested in, I won't say a fan of, because that sounds weird, uh, if you're interested in true crime, uh, I think once you read this book, you'll change your perspective on true crime, that's for sure. I think you'll learn to become more human, and I'll explain what that means, and we'll go through it with Barbara Butcher, uh, who is the Chief of Staff and Director of the Forensic Science Training Program at the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner. She was responsible for overall agency management strategy and interagency relations, which is the management side of things. She started off as a medical investigator. And she lives in New York City, and she has seen it all, folks. Let's bring her in, and let's just start talking to, uh, about it, because the actual talking about it, I think, will curl your hair. Let's welcome in Barbara Butcher. Barbara, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. I thoroughly enjoyed this book, as much as there are parts of this book where I don't think people should be enjoying it, Barbara, but uh, your life is so incredibly fascinating. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I had never thought of it as fascinating. I thought of it as troublesome, but lucky in the end. Right. In the end. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. It is. There, there are parts of your life that are uh, yeah, yeah, troublesome, okay, troublesome, lonely. There are parts of your, your life that are, uh, at times, I, let's face it, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. I, 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 I'm sorry to say that, but... But the life of a, a death investigator in in New York City, boy, you want to talk about making it to the top, okay? A mm. death investigator in the middle of Missouri has a slow life. <laughs> but you're in the number one market in the United yeah. States, and yeah. it doesn't get much more busy than your profession in that city. Now, Absolutely. you're a native New Yorker, correct? Yes, born in Brooklyn, raised out on Long Island in Massapequa Park, which we'll get to later, recent events in the news, and um, then hustled on back to the city as soon as I could. And I've been here, except for one little stint in California, one year, but they didn't get me there. They didn't have edginess, <laughs> yeah. they didn't have sarcasm, and no darkness. Um, here in New York, I was able to have the most exciting yet soul-crushing career in the world. That's a that's a great way to describe New York, actually. <laughs> Exciting and soul-crushing all at the same time. Now, I have to ask you this question, Barbara. Is it the fact that there is so much action, so much potential, and the fact that the stakes are so high when you're a native New Yorker that keeps you tied to home? Hmm. That's a really good question. I hadn't heard that before. Yes, I think I think you're right. There's something about having made it here. Um, you don't want to let go of it. It would be so much easier for me to go down to Florida and live in a place where I could ride around in a golf cart mm -hmm. and have coffee in the sunshine every morning. Instead, I go down 58 floors in an elevator that often breaks and wait on long lines for coffee with grouchy people. 
I don't have to do that. And yet it's my town, it's my home. And here lie the people that I have metaphorically buried. Um, Past loves, past cases, friends, everything is here. And as I look out my window, I have a view of Manhattan from Brooklyn. I see buildings where I've done cases or I've done investigations. And that's always kind of spooky to me. Yeah. You have a wonderful way of putting it in the book. Uh, And I'm going to paraphrase. I I won't give you the exact phrase here. And you could probably correct me on it. To paraphrase it, it's the only place, and, and you're citing, you cite a case when you, when you put it this way, it's the only place where you could be in the middle of the hustle and bustle of New York City and be the loneliest person in the world. Yeah. This is a great place for people who want to be alone, yet are too scared to go out in the woods where no one can hear them scream. That's Here in New York. <laughs> that's it. Yes, that's exactly how you put it. Yeah. And I think of it, you know, it, uh, my stepdad was, was born and raised, uh, in, in the Bronx and in Harlem. And I went back a, a, a time with him and I saw exactly what, what it was, um, especially upper Manhattan. And, and when you're mentioning some of these places, I'm seeing them in my mind, mm-hmm. especially in your early days as an investigator. And, I think to myself, the only place in the world where at three in the morning you can go get Chinese food, pizza, you, you mentioned the Greek cafes, or, you know, where you could, if you wanted to, sit and connect with the person, if, mm-hmm. you, if you wanted to. Yeah, or as I talk about the, um, that researcher who came to me and said, why does New York City have the lowest suicide rate in the country? I wasn't aware of that, because God knows I see a ton of them, but He said, do you have any ideas? Well, yes, I do. Greek diners. New York has diners everywhere. Mm -hmm. Long Mm -hmm. Island, too. And that's the place where at four o'clock in the morning, if you wake up in a panic of loneliness and despair, you can walk out to the diner, sit at the counter, have a cup of coffee and talk to the guy behind the counter. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're if you're eating alone all the time, you can go there and sit in the middle of a crowd. You could even talk to someone if you wanted to. Although in New York, we don't encourage that too much. Yeah, know? yeah. You kind of get that look, don't you? If, if yeah, someone yeah. tries to strike up a conversation with you. Yeah. Oh God, here's a nut who wants to talk to me. <laughs> but I love this city, and I love everything about it, from the grit, dirt, hustle, and crime to the the glory of cultural institutions and Broadway. So it's my town. Love it or leave it. You know, let's tell people how you got into the love for a mystery and the love of investigation. Then eventually how you got into your career. What was it as you were a young girl that got you focused on wanting to solve that mystery? Well, curiosity. I was always curious, uh, actually to the point of nosiness. I had to know everything. And uh, when we were kids, we used to leave clues for each other around the house. What were they clues to? I have no idea. But still, they were clues and they were fun. My parents bought me a dissecting kit for my birthday and a frog in formaldehyde. And I dissected it very carefully. And I saw what was inside, what made it work. And that was fascinating. Mm -hmm. But then kids in the neighborhood started bringing me roadkill. (laughs) And I could look at that and I'd say, oh, you see this little possum here, how this like a grid marks on this, not a grid, like a line, like a tire. So he was run over across his back and it crushed his little chest cavity. 
See, that's how we died. And the kids would be like, ooh. Um, so I love doing that. I had a chemistry set. I love science. But then life takes a turn. The turn is I start drinking around 15, 16 years old. And sporadically throughout periods of my young life, I was a heavy drinker. Mm -hmm. I went to college late in life, and I did become a physician assistant working in surgery, which was terrific. I did well. But then things started to fall apart a little, started drinking a little more. I, I, I had a good career, but I wasn't happy inside, and I had this compulsion to drink. Well, one thing led to another, and I lost my good job. I became a full-blown alcoholic, living in a 170-square-foot studio with filthy pigeons on my windowsill and, uh, you know, a little hot plate. And my life was infinitesimally small. I didn't even go to the movies. I didn't read books. I just drank. Mm -hmm. I worked in the day. I worked in clubs at night. I worked off the books in a button store. With all my education and things, I just, I, I just dropped my whole life on the floor. And then one night, uh, I went to my favorite Chinese restaurant, which gave free wine uh, for as much as you could drink. Well, I can drink a lot. <laughs> and so I would make an entree and an appetizer last two and a half hours while the waiters glared at me and kept pouring the turpentine-flavored wine. Ew. And when I walked out of there, I was blind drunk. And then we went and met some friends for more drinks. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened after that, I don't know for sure, but my friends recreated it for me. Um, I was in a blackout. And the story is that uh, a guy asked on a guy, a beggar on the street asked me for some money. And I said, yeah, but you just want it for drugs, right? He said, yes, of course. I said, well, my man, I applaud your honesty. And I gave him all the money. I had $80. And uh, after that, I fell down on the street. I fell up the stairs going home. And I woke up that morning in a tangled mess of sweaty sheets on the floor. And I was sick, sick beyond measure. Everything hurt. My head hurt. My body hurt. My soul hurt. And uh, after taking a fistful of aspirin and you know, a gallon of water. I called a friend. I said, uh, things didn't go so good last night. She said, Barbara, what about a meeting? I said, I'm in no, no shape for a meeting. What are you talking about? She said, how about AA? Wow. AA? I, I don't have a problem. Yeah. Well, you're laying on the floor. Okay. Yeah. I went to a meeting and I went to another and another and another. And when I first walked in, I was like, I got to hide in the back here. I don't want anyone knowing I'm an alcoholic. Oh, Barbara, honey, everyone knew you were an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> that was no secret. And I got sober. That was fantastic. I, I felt good. I felt alive. Um, and one of the benefits of that New York State offers for people with disabilities like alcoholism, mm -hmm. it is a disease after all, mm -hmm. is uh, a program called EPRA, the Employment Program for Recovering Alcoholics. And we did all kinds of things in group therapy and learned how to work among workers. And we took tests, Minnesota Multiphasic, Briggs-Myers, Personality Preferential, blah, blah, blah. At the end of those tests, my counselor said, Barbara, you should either be a poultry veterinarian or a coroner. I said, poultry? Why poultry? 
He said, well, you're good with diagnostics. So veterinarian would be fine for you. But if you get with puppies and kittens, you're going to be emotionally attached and get upset. Oh. We don't need, you don't need that. Yeah. Chickens have beady little eyes. No one cares about them. That's for you. I said, no, I'll take the dead people. <laughs> so he said, I want you to call the one person in New York City who you think has the best job in the world. And I did. I called Dr. Charles Hirsch, the chief medical examiner, and said, could I come in and talk to you about your work? Sure. And I did. And I spent time there. And they offered me a job as a death investigator. Whoa, me? You got to be kidding. This is like a gift from heaven. So the misfortune of alcoholism gave me the career of a lifetime. 23 years of being able to poke my nosy little nose into other people's business, <laughs> satisfy my curiosity, do a little good in the world in terms of justice and public health, and see things that no one else got to see. And to work with cops. I love cops. Yeah. Uh, I'm from a cop family. Mm -hmm. And um, it was fantastic. I got to travel the world and work on mass disasters. Um, but it, it was it was the most wonderful job you could imagine for me until it wasn't. Right. And we'll talk about one of those mass disasters here in the second half of the program is you were you were key during 9-11. In 9-11, right. one of those disasters had absolutely changed your life. We'll talk about that again in the second half of the program. I want to focus on your, your early career, and I, I want to... I want to talk about some stuff that will absolutely stun some people. I do want to focus for a second on the uh, on the alcoholism part of things because it's funny how people will be quick to want to turn down the principles of AA, but really the principles of AA drove your career and drove the way you operated and and really made your career a success. A lot of the principles of AA drove your professional career and drove you to heights that really in, in, in a field that was male driven, got you to high, I mean, it got you to management. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that, um, a, a lot isn't said about these principles of AA and is, is kind of kept, uh, by how should I put this? Uh, people who are not alcoholic are, are, are not, or, or, chemical dependent is a good way to put it uh are they're not thought of enough or they're not put out there enough but it, really they're they're great staples for life that's a, a really good uh, i'm so glad you picked that up because not many people see that that aa is not just about stopping drinking it's about recreating your life a life of uh being humble of working with integrity, of being true to yourself, true to other people. It really is a formula for life and to work with um, a higher power, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call that. I'm not a religious person, but sure. there's something out there in the universe. If we can access that power, that guidance, then in whatever form you seek it, it's it's a good way to live. And God knows, through some of the most tragic and horrifying cases I ever saw, there were moments where I just, I, you know, I couldn't take a drink. So I'd have to just turn it over in my mind. I'd say HP for higher power. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 
show me how to go with this one. <laughs> you know, I learned to detach from my emotions enough to do the work. Compassionate disentanglement from the emotions of the moment so that I could be of service to not just the victim, their family. I could get justice for people. That was big for me. Little old me, the drunk, I could actually do something important. That's huge. And that's one of the things I, I wanted to bring up with you, because when you're in a situation like that, and that is a traumatic job that you had, mm -hmm. one of the highest as far as if you want to talk about a trauma scale, you're probably a 15 on a, out of a 10 in a trauma scale as far as <laughs> jobs go. You see things in that job that most people could not stomach once, let alone over and over and over again in an eight hour day. And you, you answered it eloquently as to how you continue to put one foot in front of the other. But there comes a time, and, and you put it eloquently in the book, Barbara, where you can't disassociate yourself compassionately. You hit a wall. And we can either leave it for the book, or if you want to describe how you try to push through that, that wall... How do you do it? I mean, because there was a time in your career where you hit that that wall and you start to disconnect. How does it affect you? How does it affect people that you that you love? How does it affect mm. people in your life when you your friends around you? How does it because you're dealing with other investigators around you who are dealing with the same thing? You all emotionally go through this where you hit this wall, especially uh, Dr. Hirsch, who's your boss. And your mentor, he, he's, he's helping you through this as well. And he was key with helping you through a lot of these situations. How do you push yeah. through that wall? Well, compassion fatigue is the wall. And that is that every single day you're going to see something horrifying and tragic. There were times when I saw things so awful that when I got home, I just pull off my clothes put the sheets over my head, sit in the bed and just wish that I could get out of my body, out of my mind and unsee what I had saw, what I had seen, um, what I had saw. It's it's um, it's horror. It's being faced with evil because there is evil in the world. And sometimes it's just so terrifying. And I just didn't know what to do except to detach from my emotions and I soon learned that you can't just turn one emotion off. They mm. all go off. Yeah. And so it was starting to affect my life. Um, my relationships uh, were not going well uh, with friends. I was angry all the time. I felt like they should magically understand what I had just gone through. I couldn't tell them because it was too horrifying. Couldn't show them, certainly. But I expected them to know that I was suffering, that I was shut down, numb. Um, and at that time, it became a work addiction. I, I took more. I took more and more overtime and saw more and more cases, almost as if to obliterate myself. I, it was a strange reaction. Um, and when you hit the wall and you're no longer, when you can no longer care, about the families and the people, then you become useless. And that's where Dr. Hirsch stepped in. And unfortunately, back in those days, um, 
you know, I said, you know, chief, we're all getting a little crazy here. We're paranoid. A lot of us drinking too much, gambling, having affairs, you know, it's mm-hmm. anything to numb the pain. I said, I think we need counseling. And he said, no, Barbara, we're strong people. We don't need that. We do this job because we can. We're the strongest people in the world. And I think that's what was how he was dealing. But he was wrong. It was yeah. the one time I ever saw him wrong. Yeah. Today, there's increasingly this movement to have peer uh, peer counseling just for investigators to sit and talk. Hey, what'd you see today? What was the most horrible thing today? Just to get it out. Because holding in secrets, oh, that's a dangerous business. They fester. And, um, you know, we used a very dark humor. Yeah. Uh, you see in the yeah. book. Yeah. 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 Gallows humor. I mean, it, it happens. Yeah. 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 And uh, I, I guess I forgot the most primal lesson of all. When I was in training, my first, one of my first autopsies, uh, I was working with this Dr. Jackie Lee, and she was doing the autopsy of an eight-year-old girl who had been raped, smothered, strangled, and thrown in a junk heap. And I was, I, I was horror-stricken. I was like, my God, how could anyone do this? This is true, true evil. And I asked Dr. Lee, how do you do this every day? How do you go home and, and survive and enjoy your life? And she said, Barbara, when you leave here every day, I want you to surround yourself with things of beauty, art, music, dance, culture, food, love, and do something creative. And I took in that lesson, and then I forgot it. Years later, I got myself a little house up in the mountains and the Catskills, and that became a place for me to be creative, to have nature, grass, and trees, and and build, you know, do little renovations. I got a cat and a dog. That helped a lot. And that sort of brought me back to a better place. And then 9-11 happened. Yeah. And again, in the second half of the program, we'll talk extensively about 9-11, exactly how that changes you and, and how that how that changes you from dealing with singular deaths to mass death. We'll talk about that in the second half of the program. I want to focus a little bit on single deaths here, and I, I, we will get a little morbid here for a bit. So again, if, if you are triggered by certain details of death we are going to get into that here so you might want to fast forward to the break um because we'll get into that here in just a moment um i i want to speaking of gallows humor there's a there's a section in the book i think that um describes it perfectly there's a there's a and if you want to kind of uh embellish on the story here or expound on the story barbara I'd, i'd appreciate it uh there's a there's a scene in the book where one of your fellow investigators, you go out onto the scene of a death. There's a there's a man laying there, um, and I'm trying to remember if this was a if this was a suicide or if this was a, a it wasn't a natural. I know that, uh, which is a short for natural death. But the man had been laying there, and one of the investigators, a crowd had gathered, and one of the investigators was kind of appeasing the crowd, or and he lifted up the man's arm. Oh, yeah. Wave to the crowd. Can you tell people that story? Yeah, it was over on the East River. Um, There was a body on the shore. 
mm-hmm. man laying there, uh, either either a, a, you know likely a drowning victim. He may have jumped from one of the bridges or uh, may have been murdered and thrown in the water. We didn't know yet. And I was in training with this guy, Randy, one of the old hands. And as we were examining the body, a boatload of tourists came by. And they were all, they all had cameras and they all started clicking away. And, you know, here's a dead body. Oh my God, New York, this is so exciting. So Randy raised the dead man's arm and waved merrily to all the people on the boats. And then those cameras went wild, click, 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 click. They couldn't wait to show the folks back home in Stuttgart, you know, the the crazy New Yorkers. Uh, but that, you know, uh, those things happen now and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I must say. I remember uh, in 2000, I was, uh, I was, uh, I went with my stepdad uh, back to, back home to New York. He had some stuff to do for, uh, for his mom. And uh, we went to, I wanted to go to a Yankee game. So we, we had uh, taken the train uptown uh, we went and walked a couple of blocks, you know, back out, off the train to, to, uh, we didn't take the train directly to the stadium cause I wanted to, I wanted to see some stuff. Of course, you know, silly me, I want to see some stuff. Well, I got to see some stuff. Um, because there on the sidewalk was a, um, as they're investigating, of course, there's a, there's a dead body there and a sheet under a dead body. And pop says to me, Oh, that's nothing in this neighborhood, you know? You know, and you mentioned the high rises right near in the book, the high rises right near Yankee Stadium. Well, my my stepsister's grandma lives or used to live in that high rise. So when you when you mentioned that high rise, I went, oh, I know that high rise. Um, And so as we're walking, I'm thinking and, and I think a lot like you when when I'm thinking, you know, that's somebody's. You know, and there's crowds gathering, and I'm thinking how morbid, you know, because I'm thinking that's that's somebody's brother, that's somebody's son, that's somebody's nephew. Mm-hmm. You know, how can somebody get you know titillation? And that's the word titillation out of this person that's that's laying there because it there was there was very little sympathy. It seemed like a few people were mourning or knew that person. Mm-hmm. The rest it was just curiosity. You know. I'll tell you a strange one um, over on Trinity by Trinity Church down by on, on Wall Street. There's mm-hmm. a 25 story building there. And this young guy, a guy only in his late 20s, jumped off the top of the building and landed in Trinity Church. He struck the gravestones and uh, broke some of them and it split his body into many pieces. It was just horrible. And as when I arrived, the police had covered him with sheets and there was a huge crowd gathered all around us outside the little iron spike fence. And they were waiting for me to pick the sheets off so that they could see this shattered man. And I started to lift the sheet. Then I said, wait a second. Hey, guys, call the police over. I said, let's pick up the sheets together. Let's encircle him so that I can examine his body in privacy and give him a little decency and respect here. So as I did that, as we covered him up, the crowd started to boo. They said, boo, boo, what are you hiding? Let us see him. These were secretaries, stockbrokers, office workers, messengers, regular folks, regular, just good old New Yorker people. And they wanted to see this poor man. 
And oh, the anger that filled me on his behalf. I was so angry. And then I, I thought, what makes what makes people do that? Is it that facing something that's that's horrible? It, it, could it help allay their fears somehow? Could it does familiarity breed comfort? I don't know. But you, you, we all know that you, when you get stuck in a traffic jam, half the time it's because there's been an accident. Everybody wants to slow down and see yeah. if there's any blood. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Rubbernecking is a huge uh, part of, of driving. You know, yeah. I really don't know. But, you know, look, I'm someone that goes and looks at deaths and, and finds them very curious and very interesting. So who am I to say? Maybe that's my way of dealing with the fear. Right, but you, you do it. Well, and I want to talk about that in a second. I, I'm going to finish this part of the story. And this was the part that was a little tragic for me, Barbara, in that we walked by this this innocent boy because he was a teenager mm. lay, laying under this sheet. I had no idea. And I couldn't see him because he was under a sheet. I didn't know who was under that sheet. We go to the Yankee game. We have a great time. Yankees beat the Angels. Okay. <laughs> and I still remember four to three, had a great time. My only Yankee game that I've ever seen at Yankee Stadium. Um, I get home a couple days, you know, get home, get home to Uncle Bunky's house. That's, that's home, home. Um, find out a couple days later, it's one of my stepsister's best friends. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. and, and, and that's how close things hit home to you. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's to think that, but, but to think that people in a morbid curiosity, not just, it's beyond morbid curiosity. Like I say, consider it's titillation. That's just me. Hmm. But, and, you know, I, I want to swing that back around to the, the point that you were, you were talking about there. When we talk about the, the motivation to want to hear these stories, or to not only just want to hear these stories, but to, but to want to be in on it, you know, to want to stop in the middle of traffic and see, oh, just how bad this was. Oh, you know, let's, let's mm. see. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, just a few days ago. There was a, a video here on the local news. Uh, here in Minnesota, we don't know how to zipper merge. We have no idea. And we, we get competitive about it. We want to knock the other guy right out of there. Well, it actually happened. There was a truck mm. that wouldn't let a car in. And boom, this car exploded and, and got knocked probably a good 30, 40 feet off the highway because this truck didn't want to let him in. Right. Mm. Again, in Minnesota, zipper merging is a competitive sport. Uh, luckily, thank God, this guy was uninjured. But could have been much, much worse. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, this is more than just news. This is like on repeat over and over and over again in every newscast. And they don't show it just once, Barbara. They show this video four or five times on repeat. Like it's, you know, like it's a blooper reel. To me, that's a little much. Well, yeah, who yeah. knows why, but um, we have a huge appetite for tragedy and danger and, and strange things happening. Um, I can't help but think that it's some kind of bulwark against fear. It's, I don't, you know, I haven't read up on it. I'm sure psychologists would have a lot to say, but look, true crime is such a huge part of our culture now. People sure. love true crime. Why mm -hmm. is that? Well, to me, it's probably that it, give us, it gives us a degree of familiarity and therefore control over our own fear. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you can watch a show about a man who's killed his wife and in great detail, get to know those people and even think about, oh, how would I solve this? It gives you a measure of control in some way. Is it how all I can think of? Is it how would I solve this or how could I stop this? Do you think there's some people who think that, you know, if I watch enough of this, I could avoid this? Oh, sure. And that's a really good point. I think for a lot of women, the the signs of a cheating husband, um, <laughs> you know, you learn that on TV and learn those subtle signs of when he's found a 22 year old girl to run off with, um, even though you've been married 20 years and have four kids. Well, suddenly he's he's found his true love and he doesn't want an ordinary divorce. No, that would be terrible because he'd have to share his money. So why not just kill the wife? I'll tell you why not, because you're going to get caught, damn it. The odds are are that you're going to get caught. And it's only money, guys. Come on. Go be with your mistress. Go have your true love and your romance and fairy tale ending. But for God's sake, let your family live. It's only money. Just share it and go make more. And the fact of the matter is, is the mistress probably isn't going to marry you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When it comes right down to it. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, you're fun for the moment, but uh, yeah. No, it's a yeah. it's a terrible thing, but that's how many times have you seen these shows, you know, Dateline 2020, Primetime Crime, 48 Hours, and the, you always say, ah, it's the husband. It's the husband. Um, the husband's got a mistress, you know? Yeah. Uh, the other point I wanted to I, I wanted to kind of throw at you here is, you know, we I, I want to ask you this on a personal level. Because, you know, as as you had pointed out through through AA, you part of that is is having to not just acknowledge a higher power, but believe in a higher power and and, and really take that to heart. But then again, you're balancing this with seeing some of the most gruesome, awful deaths from murder to suicide to i mean even sometimes a natural death can be horrible um you talk about someone with a, a chronic disease that that wastes away that 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 in itself can be horrible and anybody who's i guess not steeped in any type of faith could look at that and go man it's hard for me to justify i mean someone who's an atheist could probably look at what you do in your job and go well, there's my proof. There's no God, you know. Um, do you, and this is my question to you, when you see all of this, first of all, does it tug at your faith when you see it? And second of all, when you see all of this, does it scare you about the end? Mm. Wow. Well, you're going deep here. <laughs> I am, yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, two things. First of all, the, the higher power can be anything you want. It can be the power of people who want good and want to do good. Mm-hmm. It can be the power of the universe. Uh, it can be a God. It can be anything you want. For me, it is uh, some universal creator of, of some kind. I, I have no idea what it's a power. And on earth we people um when when we say how could god allow this to happen i say wait a second how could you allow this to happen 
we allow children to starve, even in our own country. We allow people to shoot each other randomly. We allow children to be hit by vehicles or stricken with terrible diseases for lack of good medical care. We allow this. We have free will. Um, We could stop hunger tomorrow. It's it's not that difficult if we were willing to share resources. Um, But we're not because as humans, we also have a, a basic selfishness. Can we overcome that? Sure. Plenty of people do. But I don't think that the higher power um, allows young girls to be raped and killed. I think we allow that. And other countries don't have um, uh, school shootings the way we do. Mm -hmm. They don't let little children be slaughtered. Now, I am not anti-gun. As a matter of fact, I enjoy target shooting. But I am for sensible gun legislation. I don't think a 17-year-old with a psychiatric history should be allowed to buy uh, an automatic weapon, uh, an AR-15, any of those things. just doesn't make sense. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we let this happen. We let little children be shot. Yeah. Agreed. Um, about the end. Uh, do, are mm. you, is there a type of death that you fear more than others? Is, is there one, because there are some, there are some gruesome ends that you describe in the book. Um, is there a, is there an end that you absolutely look at and you go, oh God, no, uh-uh. Yeah, any death at the hands of another person. Um, I'm very, very much a control freak. I like to control my own destiny in every possible way. And the thought that some clown could come along and ruin my life, ruin ruin my family mm-hmm. um, with just a senseless, stupid action, like driving drunk mm-hmm. or, you know, choosing to, uh, you know, kill me, that makes me enraged. The kind of death I would like to have, if no one minds, is to be walking past a bad neighborhood on a sunny morning and there's a stray bullet that hits me in the back of the head at the age of 91. And then everyone will say, oh, what a terrible tragedy. She had so much to live for. And now she's gunned down in the streets. Very dramatic. You know, I'd get my little publicity shot there. (laughs) (laughs) So you get a, a little little notoriety on your way out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to be remembered as, you know, that dynamic woman. Oh, she was 91, but she still played golf and she still went out to parties. And look at her slain in the streets. <laughs> I don't want to lay here in bed, you know, um, yeah. dying slowly. And I don't want to die at the hands of another. It's uh, That's not my style. I want to go fast and dramatically. There you go. I had a great aunt Lucille who lived into her 90s, who up until the last year of her life, she drove, she bowled, she golfed. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, but uh, the, she she kind of went downhill because of some physical stuff. But uh, but that was at the very last year or two of her life. But otherwise, she was out there. Yeah. My mom just died uh, 10 days ago. She was oh, 92. Yeah. And um, she we golfed last year. She played bocce yeah. ball and mahjong. She had friends. She went to parties. She had a great life. And then, you know, a disease hit cancer and 
fortunately it was fairly quick um and she didn't she didn't suffer too much which i thank god for every day or thank the higher power for every day um but you know it's uh we don't get much choice in the way we go unfortunately that's that's true we all got to go some way i believe you said in the book right yeah, well, the death rate is now uh, 100%. Yeah, that's funny how that works. <laughs> <laughs> well, God bless your mom. It sounds like she had a wonderful life, and I'm so, so, so sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. Thank you. She had a good life. Yes, she did. Um, I I want to address, I, I don't want to go to break on a negative note, but I do want to address one thing before we get to the second half of the program. In the second half of the program, I want to jump into uh, 9-11, and I want to jump into your experiences there. And then I want to end on a positive note and talk about the changes you made uh, within New York City and within their organization there. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book, which, you know, I... I I don't want to say it's controversial because it's not. I ag- I agree with the way you feel on on suicide because it's to me, you know, I I see depression and I, I I've there have been times I've been depressed as well, but I went and got medication for it. Um, and I I feel for people who are depressed, and I want to mm-hmm. help those people who are depressed. Um. Describe to our audience your feelings when you see people who are depressed who commit suicide. Because I don't want to speak for you. I want you to speak for you, Barbara. And and these deaths that you see, because there are chapters in the book. And and please, we'll we'll get to one of the things that was very alarming. I want you to describe a scenario that was just to me it it was almost overload. But first, I want you to to describe your feelings when it comes to suicide? It makes me angry, angry and sad. First Mm -hmm. of all, I've suffered depression almost all my life since the age of 12. And, you know, with with good medication and good treatment, I've managed to have a really good life Mm -hmm. um, with some ups and downs. Um, But what makes me mad is that it's preventable, that there are people who are depressed and it's so plain, it's so obvious and they're not getting help. They're not getting medication and not getting treatment. And part of that, I think, is that suicide is, is stigmatized. And we're afraid to say to someone, look, I, I see that you really seem depressed. You're not enjoying your life. Let's talk. Um, are you th- and, and, and the most direct question of all, have you thought about harming yourself? we got to ask that question. Yeah. If you yeah. love somebody, if you're friends with somebody, if you care, just ask them, have you thought about harming yourself or, you know, talk to me? And you'd be surprised at the answer. Sometimes they'll say, yeah, absolutely. I can't stand this anymore. And then all you have to say is, okay, let's look for a doctor. Let's go online. I know there's medication and you can feel terrific. You can, you can have a good life. Mm-hmm. Depression is a liar. Depression tells you that everything is gray, that everything is joyless. There's no sense to anything. It's a liar. Yep. And you've got to fight that lie. So I get mad when I see that people didn't get any help and that they were so horribly in pain that they end their own little lives, their own universe to avoid that pain. It's awful. Yeah. I don't like it. 
I won't stand for it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and I'm right there with you. You know, I, I told you before the interview, I, I, I've never read a book in which I've seen myself mirrored back so many times. And so many of the things I think are in this book that it was almost scary. Um, but that was one of the things I was like, ah, right on, Barbara, right on. I get it. I, I'm right there with you. And one of the things I found interesting when you were talking about suicide is a sad suicide. Can you describe to people what, what you mean by that? Um, the angry versus sad suicide? Yeah. 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 Um, angry suicides to me are the ones that, um, go out with a bang, if you will, that they they jump in front of a train, they jump from the top of a building and then crash to the ground in a huge explosive noise and mess. It's a very public end to a very private tragedy. And that that act, um, it, it's like, hey, damn it, look what you made me do. Look what I had to do. Uh, and, and the anger, I think, comes from the fact that no one spoke to them. No one helped them. No one thought to say, are you OK? And then there are the sad suicides, people who take an overdose of sleeping pills or, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, helium gas yeah. uh, in a bag over their head. They just go quietly in sadness. People who've perhaps lost a loved one or a marriage ended. They're just plain sad and the pain is too awful to continue. And so they go quietly away. Now, we don't really know much about why people choose different suicide methods, but only 30% of them leave a note. So we don't really know much. I find but, that I find that disturbing that only 30% want to explain why they go. You would think more people if you're going to make a statement or if you're going to leave this life, mm-hmm. you would want to tell somebody why. Mm. Well, I think at that point they're past rationality. They're just angry, rageful. The the anger turns against themselves and against others. Um one of the most egregious examples is, you know, the people who walk into a crowd, shoot 40 people and then shoot themselves. Like, why not? If you're going to do it, why aren't you just killing yourself and be done with it? Why do you have to take others with you? And I think that's that's, you know, I suffered so badly. Now you're all going to suffer with me. That kind of anger. Yeah. But, um, you know, sometimes people, they shoot themselves in the head. Is that to stop the thoughts and the feelings? Um, I've seen people stab themselves in the heart twice, which is so painful and so disturbing. Yet, it's better than the pain of their existence, of their heartbreak, if you will. So, I don't know. I don't like, that's my least favorite death method. (laughs) I don't like suicides. Yeah, I I don't either. Um, You mentioned um, the angry death. And and the one example I wanted to bring up that again is disturbing, but it is the messiest way to go. And this is, this is why, and you know, I have, I have people that I've heard have threatened this and they don't think it through, but jumping from a high place Mm-hmm. Um, there's an example that you bring up in the book that is so disturbing that 
I, I, I want you to tell people here to give them an idea of just how disturbing this is. There's, I believe it, is it the Marriott downtown mm -hmm. where you had the, yeah. the jumper and you actually walked into it before you saw it? Yeah. That has the balconies? Yes, the Marriott Hotel in Midtown has um, a huge elevator bank in, in glass that goes to the top floor. It's, uh, I don't know, 50 stories or something. But it, oh, that, that, that big rotunda, that big atrium, that's what it is, is surrounded by balconies. And so people can go stand up there and look down into the lobby and they can watch the glass elevator coming up and down and they can jump from there. And it became a very popular spot, just like the Golden Gate was a popular spot for a while. The Marriott became so popular as a jumping uh, venue that they had a, uh, I think it was a code black, where they had these little screens that, on wheels uh, right at hand. And if the front desk announced code black, everyone raced to their places and shielded the decedent who was splashed in the middle of the lobby, um, you know, broken and, and crushed. And this one particular case I went to, a man was up on a balcony and he was looking across at a young kid, maybe 13 years old. And he said, hey, kid, hey, kid. He started yelling. Kid said, what? He said, tell them to look out below. And then he jumped, crash to the ground, something like 47 stories down. And I mean, why do that to a kid? Yeah. What the hell was that about? Right. Um, and when he landed, uh, he was everywhere. I mean, I, his foot had come off. I mean, because there's a tendency to bounce around among those between the glass elevator and the, uh, the, the balconies. And as I walked in, I accidentally stepped in a piece of his liver, um, which was scattered all over the carpet. And I went into the ladies' room and I was, I took off my boot and I was standing there with my badge hanging around my neck and picking the liver out of my shoes. And a woman came in to fix her lipstick and she just looked at me like, what are you doing? And I said, honey, you don't want to know what I just did. You don't ever want to know. <laughs> and I just walked out and this man was, he made such a statement it's like, hey, everybody, look at me. Screw you. Here I go. Bang. And I've seen that many times. So one girl jumped off. Um, she was at uh, Juilliard, music student, mm -hmm. young, young Asian woman, um, very brilliant. And she jumped off the building and her note read, Dear and honorable parents, I am so sorry that I did not make it to first violin. I am so sorry that I dishonored you. Have a nice day. <laughs> she jumped. Have a nice day. The passive, aggressive anger in that. Oh. Yeah, here. I disappointed you. Sorry. Now go have a nice day. I just killed myself. Oh, my God. So much anger. Right? Oh, my God. That is uh, sad, tragic, uh, but to to want to strike back that hard at your parents before you leave this mm -hmm. earth, I mean, the focus, the obsession, 
And to leave that much energy behind on your way out is devastating. Absolutely. It's a real way to punish your parents. It's a horrible, horrible thing to do. So much easier to just talk to them and tell them the truth. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Let's take our break. Our guest is Barbara Butcher. What the Dead Know is the name of the book. We have a link for it in the description of this program. I encourage you to go get it, folks. It's put up by Simon & Schuster. Uh, When we come back, let's talk about 9-11 and Barbara's important role in 9-11 and her department's role in 9-11. Again, what the dead know, learning about life as a New York City death investigator. And we'll talk about that fateful day where Barbara was and how she got involved and what exactly you do when you have insurmountable odds day after day after day put in front of you how you process that, how you move forward, how you put one foot in front of the other, and how you eventually get to the end, and how long does it take to get to the end. We'll talk about all that. And is there truly an end? Because Barbara then went from there to establishing different departments within the OCME in New York City. It's a, it's an amazing story, folks. We'll talk about it when we come back. Barbara Butcher is our guest with the dead no. Uh, learning about life as a New York City death investigator is the name of the book. When we come back, more with Barbara Butcher here on True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Barbara Butcher is our guest, and the book is out there right now, What the Dead Know. We have a link to it in the description of this program. I encourage you to go get it right now. An excellent book that... uh, it's hard to say you enjoy a book about about processing the dead, Barbara, but I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I, you know, I, I that's all I can say. I enjoyed the book. Oh, thank I, you, Tim. I, uh, I enjoyed reading about your life. One of the tougher chapters, or, or and I and I stress chapters, is is reading about nine eleven. We all have the memory of where we were on nine eleven. Uh, ironically enough. I think we both started our day the same way. I slept in on 9-11, and, and I know you did too. Um, I had torn all the ligaments in my ankle, and so I was under the influence of pain medication. When I woke up, I thought I was dreaming. Wow. I didn't think, I didn't think it was real. And, mm-hmm. and I got much the same call you did, turn on the TV. Explain to people, you were at home at the time, and you were going through, you would, well, I'll let you tell the story, but you had gone through a, a relatively tough time with, mm-hmm. uh, with the job, decided to have surgery, and decided that it was a good time to get away from the job, reset, refocus. You decided to have surgery. Uh, you finish from there and tell people where it was that you were on 9-11 and what brought you back in a hurry. Sure. You know, uh, originally the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, uh, I worked that. And of course, I ran right down to the site. I went right into the explosion area uh, in a skirt and heels, by the way, uh, with Dr. Charles Hirsch. And uh, so, you know, we immediately got to work searching for the bodies, things like that. Mm -hmm. I am at my best in a disaster. I like to get in there, get things organized, get things moving. So on the morning of 9-11, it would be expected that were I there, I would run right down to the World Trade Center with my boss 
and get into action. But I wasn't there that day. Some weeks before, I had just hit that wall you mentioned. I had such compassion fatigue. I I couldn't do another case. I, I was just a mess. And Dr. Hirsch encouraged me to take a vacation. But I decided instead, well, I've been putting off this surgery for a while. Let me get this now. And I was supposed to be back to the office on, uh, I believe it was Monday, September 9th or September 10th. But that weekend, I called my boss and I said, I I just can't come in. I'm not ready. He said, Barbara, I already got you on the schedule and you have no more sick days. You've got to come in. I said, I just can't. I don't know what the hell it is, David. I I can't do it. He was mad as all hell. But I said, I'll tell you what, let me come in on Wednesday, the 12th. And uh, he said, all right, damn it. And so on the morning of 9-11, I was at home. I was at home in New Jersey and uh, my stepson called me and said, you know, look on the television. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I got to get there right away. I was in Asbury Park. So I called the Asbury Park Police Department. I said, if you've got any anybody going in, I, I need to get in there. They said, yes, we got a busload on its way now. We'll send a second busload of first responders. Come on down. And I watched in horror on the television as my city, my city was attacked. My people, my friends, cops, firemen that I had worked with for years. And then this building collapses on them. And then again and again. And I just, it was absolutely overwhelming, terrifying. I I had no experience for dealing with this. And for all we knew, there could be 100,000 dead. We just didn't know. Well, shortly, the Asbury Park police called me back and said, listen, uh, our bus was turned away at the border. They closed down the whole city. We can't get over the, we can't get through the tunnel or over the bridges. And so that entire day, I had no way to get into the city. And it occurred to me in the midst of all that horror, wow, I was supposed to be at work today. And I'm not because I had a weird feeling on Saturday and didn't want to come back in. Mm-hmm. That's what I call a God shot. Yeah. I mean, something happened, some confluence of the universe. I don't know what it is, but prevented me from going there as I ordinarily would. But my boss went, my friends went, my colleagues, and some of them were hurt very badly uh, when the towers came down. They were lucky enough, most of them, to be under a pedestrian bridge. Some of the firefighters under that bridge died. But my friends, my boss, they were under the part where there was a concrete ramp above them that shielded them from the worst of the debris. So they were injured badly, you know, head injuries, cuts, broken bones, um, huge lacerations. But they survived. Anyway. By the next morning, I just, I took a chance. I drove in probably at five o'clock in the morning and I went to the Lincoln Tunnel and I showed my badge and I showed my papers and I said, guys, I've got to get in. And I got a police court escort in. And I got to the office and of course the smell was permeating the whole city. That smell of, of burning metal, burning concrete, burning people. And uh, all around me were military troops. They were guarding 30th Street, where our office was. 
And uh, I, I went in and I spoke to my boss and I tried to hug him, but he just, he went, ah, geez, Barbara, all his ribs had been broken. Oh my God. But he still came back to work. He, he jumped on a boat and he got back into the office and we didn't know what we were up against. Um, that first day was, was just crazy. And the comforting thing to me was a bunch of F-16 jets went overhead. They were, and I felt like, wow, we're being protected. The country is with us right now, with us and with Washington and, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. People are with us. And I, I felt good about having the military there. And uh, we just started the job of bringing body parts to our office we got tractor trailers, refrigerated uh, tractor trailers that we lined up in an empty parking lot. And that became our morgues because we weren't dealing with nearly 3,000 dead folks. We were dealing with 25,000 body parts. Very, they were, I think they were only six whole bodies. Oh my God. Everything else was shattered. Now, here's the thing about mass death. People say a single death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you could look at it that way. But when you're down there on the pile, crawling across the rubble, through the smoke, and the flames shooting up through the concrete, and you find a desk calendar with a golf ball on it, you know, a souvenir of a hole in one yeah. or a, a, a little a little date book that says lunch with Jim, one o'clock or a child's graduation picture from elementary school. Now, it is not a statistic. It is a person. It's a person just like you and me who went to work, who left their wife, who left their husband, who left their children at home, safe in the knowledge that they'd be back for dinner. And they will never be back again. They're, each of those people was a universe. And they were destroyed, vaporized, crushed. Um, that was, I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of feeling where suddenly a, like a zooming noise comes in on you and you you see darkness for a moment and you just get like a rush through your body. I guess it's an anxiety thing, but it's a, a fundamental energy shot that runs through your body and says, Oh damn, this is bad. Yeah. This doesn't get any worse. Yep. And, um, that's what I felt. That's what I felt. And the awareness of all those lives, uh, the, that first night I worked on on what we called the line, mm-hmm. where body parts were brought in in trucks, and we just separated them, cleaned them, and packaged each one of them and labeled them for examination so that we could identify the dead. We already knew what happened. We knew all the W's, what happened, where it happened, why it happened, even who did it. But we didn't know who were the victims. We just didn't know. There were too many of them. And uh, that became our mission, was to identify the dead 
through DNA, through dental work, through hair analysis, through tattoos, any little thing we could find. Now, the police and firefighters down on the pile, every time they'd see body parts near each other, they just scoop them into a body bag and put them on the truck to us. But we soon found that these people were melded together in many cases. We mm-hmm. found a jawbone inside a, a chest cavity, two different people. Then there was another chest cavity that represented three different people. The forces of this collapse, the forces of the energy of planes hitting them, the burning, the collapsing, uh, absolutely obliterated human beings. And what survived? Paper. Paper rained down from the sky. Documents. Uh, People's signatures. Hey, Joe, please see me about this. Um, Hey, Peggy, great report. Let's talk. <laughs> the, 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 the souvenirs of human existence, of going to work every day, all gone. Just like that. Overwhelming. And that really knocked me off my pins. I was, um, now that was the beginning for me of full-blown PTSD. I bet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, thank God we got help for it. Uh, <laughs> we got a lot of help. Um, thank God from Congress that, you know, set up a, a fund to give us therapy and help us out, and especially those who had been injured. But um, just the idea that strangers could fly into the sky <laughs> and destroy thousands and thousands of people that became like a really scary thing. Suddenly, um, I got the impression that everything was a disaster waiting to happen. I, I, if I drove along Park Avenue uptown past 92nd, 93rd Street, where there's like a, a wall that shields from the, the Amtrak mm-hmm. um, train, Uh, I couldn't drive past that anymore because I was pretty sure that wall was going to fall on me, that someone was going to derail a train on purpose and knock that wall on top of me and squash me. Um, I didn't want to fly in planes anymore. I still hate it. I have to tranquilize myself to do it. Yeah. Because who knows? Somebody with a box cutter, just a simple box cutter, could use that as a weapon and attack us again. Um, it's I already, I, I had had PTSD from my, from my day to day job, of course. Right. But we didn't recognize it as such at that time. Uh, it wasn't until nine 11 that we said, oh my God, this is too much for people <laughs> to work in to process. Uh, but we had comforts. The Salvation Army came in at first with, you know, just a bunch of food and then they erected a shack. Mm-hmm with chairs and tables along 30th Street. And there they fed us hot meals all day long, gave us warm socks and dry sweatshirts and just took care of us. And that was a place where you could go and say, uh, hey, Al, how's it going? Eh, not so good today, Barbara. I, you know, I saw a, a young woman, pieces of her. It's bothering me. Yeah, I know, Al, I know. It's hard, right? 
Yeah, but she's, you know, she's gone. And I hope it was a swift ending. But wow. at least we could talk to each other in that setting, have a little comfort. When you when you talk about not feeling safe with any scenario, when you when you talk about everyday scenarios that don't feel safe anymore, it, that was the mm-hmm. one thing that nine eleven took away from everybody of that gener- generation. It, it, whether yeah. you were inside New York or outside New York, and I don't think people that were that were born after nine eleven will ever know that security. Yeah. Ever know that security before that day. I mean, we were, we were naive. We were so naive that we were, um, we were walking around thinking that we were impenetrable as a country. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. And America, the strongest nation on earth, the strong, free, protected nation. And a bunch of mopes with, you know, a few dollars to take flying lessons were able to attack us at yeah. the heart of, you know, to me, New York is the heart of the country. It is. I know. Yeah. Well, for me, anyway. But um, they were able to attack us just like that, and we couldn't do a damn thing about it. Well, it was proven on 9-11 that it's the, the heart of the country because it essentially it shut the country down. Yeah. 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 It sure did. Yeah, that was, a, that was a very terrible time. I think that started me on a whole other journey. It did, you know. And, and I'll put it to you this way, Barbara. It... it at that point, you know, God calls his soldiers at the worst of times to come forward and, and discover their true calling. And I think at that point, your true calling was really discovered at that point. Um, you know, you, you were called forward or you were called forward at, at that time to 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 a bigger calling. Um, there, mm. there are times in your life where you answered the call and you answered the call brilliantly. Um, you know, that first time when, when it was, Oh, you know, you, you had your career assessment and you stepped up. And then at nine 11, when, when it could have been so overwhelming that you could have put your sword down and walked away and said enough, this is enough. I can't, but then you, stepped up and you answered the call and you continued to answer the call. Tell people, and first I want to ask this question, then we'll, we'll move forward. How long with a disaster like that, how long does it take to finish a job like that? Because you're talking about thousands of lives. You're talking about, as you put it, 20 some thousand pieces of body to examine, to to wrap up thousands of souls and to give solace to those thousands of families. How long does a job like that take to wrap up? Well, in this case, forever. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hirsch made a commitment that we would do whatever it takes for as long as it takes until every single person was identified. Well, that was 22 years ago, and we've only identified about 60% of the victims. Really? Yeah. And I mean, DNA advanced so rapidly during that time. Uh, We were using all kinds of new techniques to do anything we could to identify these remains. But the truth is, some of the people have no remains. Some of them were literally vaporized and they will never, ever be found. 
Um, the other problem is that some of the people there had no relatives to give us DNA samples. So, you know, we'd rely on dental records, but some people, you know, like just didn't have dental insurance, didn't go to the dentist. Some people didn't have tattoos. Some people will never be identified, but you know, they don't stop at the medical examiner's office in New York city. They continue to work on those remains every single day. And every time a new DNA technology comes up, they apply it. They do everything they can to identify these people and they'll never stop because that's the commitment that Dr. Hirsch made. You know, shortly after that, we had the crash of flight 587 mm -hmm. uh, just two months later and everyone was terrified. We said, oh my God, another terrorist attack. Oh, and we had the uh, the anthrax mailings yep. just weeks after 9-11. Yep. Anthrax in the mail, for God's sake. Then Flight 587, and I started to become a disaster master. Yeah. Um, and again, it goes back to my childhood. Uh, as a little kid, when a thunderstorm was approaching, I'd get very excited and I'd run around closing all the windows, leaving them open just oh, two or three inches on opposing sides of the house so that a tornado, the pressure would equalize. Mm -hmm. I knew this at 11 years old from mm -hmm. readers, reading Reader's Digest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd put away all the bicycles and toys so that if we had to run for our lives, we wouldn't trip on the hazards. So mm -hmm. I was a little baby disaster master. <laughs> now, from my work on remains recovery and identification and 9-11, from my work on Flight 587, I started to develop a specialty. And uh, I had a guy working with me, Frank DiPaolo, absolute logistical genius. Uh, his family owned a catering business, so he had learned how to serve 250 people, four different meals all at the same time. Oh, <laughs> so wow. he knew logistics inside and out. Wow. And um, Frank became my right-hand man. And I said, Frank, you know, these things are going to keep happening, more disasters. And I think we, get, we need new plans. And he said, okay, boss. And three months later, he had the military in there giving us a lecture on how to perform mass fatality management in the heart of a disaster. And we started taking trainings with all different uh, national, you know, we went, I went to bomb school. I went to biological warfare school. We trained everywhere and we developed the finest team in the nation for dealing with mass disasters. We went over to the London underground bombing and helped there. I went to Thailand after the tsunami of 2004 that killed 250,000 people. So what, what, could we, what could you do with 250,000 people? Of course, you have to bury them in mass graves and trenches, yeah. but not in Thailand because there were about 800 European tourists there. And the European nations said, we want our citizens back. You must identify them. Oh, wow. And the Thai people are in the middle of the crisis of a lifetime. And they want European nations say, well, we want our, our dead back. And of course, those bodies had decomposed quite badly in the heat and sun. Mm -hmm. But um, Thailand, the, the people knew that they counted on tourism to keep their nation going. And so they asked for our help and we did it. 
we identified the people. Wow. We sent DNA scientists and, and, and forensic odontologists and anthropologists and, and, um, and we helped. And that was one of the, the finest moments of my life was learning from these wonderful, humble people. So, um, so Zen-like in their, I guess it's a Buddhist thing, but they were able to recognize their dead, mourn them, give them a decent uh, send-off, a blessing from the monks in these trenches, mm -hmm. but yet go back and do the work of identifying European tourists and doing it with a cheerful heart, saying, okay, our nation needs this, we're going to do it. I learned so much from them about humility and service and, and necessity. Uh, what a fantastic uh, people they are. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I learned mass disasters. And then pretty soon, Frank DiPaolo, my sidekick, he became the nation's expert on mass fatality management. Uh, and, you know, so when COVID came and 15,000 New Yorkers were dead mm -hmm. and the funeral homes were closed, Frank put the plan into action and had tractor tail trailers, reefers, reefer trucks parked outside hospitals and built huge morgues out on the Brooklyn piers to hold thousands and thousands of people for a year until burials could resume. Wow. Poor Frank. I mean, he did this job like... Uh, anyway, so but again, uh, uh, I'll go back to my earlier comment when 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 crisis steps up again, I, I believe and maybe I'm sounding preachy here, but those are anointed that are meant to step up and they and they step up in the best way. Yeah, you know? well, I like that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, um, I did step up. We all stepped up. Yeah, um, I, I saw, you know, for all my my visions of evil throughout my career, all the things I saw. I also saw the absolute best in people, cops and firemen and, 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 and volunteers from across the country who mm -hmm. came here on their own dime, stayed in hotels and said, look, I'm a coroner with lots of experience in, in mass burials. Um, I'm here to help. Mm -hmm. Sure, come on in. Mm -hmm. We took in volunteers. We took in the, the demort guys, the disaster mortuary response teams mm -hmm. from across the nation. Um, people just stepped up. Ordinary citizens uh, lining the route to the World Trade Center with with bottles of water and sandwiches. Here, here you go. Hey, anybody need dry socks? You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everybody pitched in, and that's when you saw the absolute best in people. Those mm -hmm. who step up when everything else is falling down. Yeah. And you yourself, you helped reorganize the the UOCME and, and the way they did business when it came to DNA processing, when it came to old systems, which had been around since the 50s, that, that, yeah. <laughs> that you came in and you, you helped clean up and get that system back on track, which I don't think you're patting yourself on the back enough for that as we, as we speak mm. here. Um, you want to tell people a little bit about that? You know, um, we had, before 9-11, we had fallen into sort of a comfortable place of working very ethically and very thoroughly medically. But technology, we weren't keeping pace. 
Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the things we're doing were the old fashioned way, particularly like in the toxicology laboratory where results could take months. And uh, the DNA lab, there were mistakes made. And uh, Dr. Hirsch asked me to take over the lab as director. And I'm not a DNA scientist. How the hell could I do that? He said, well, Barbara, you're a very organized person and you're an investigator. I want you to investigate that department, find out what the hell's wrong and how we can make it right. And we did. We did. It's the largest forensic uh, DNA lab in the country. And it's also the finest. And, um, you know, I, I feel like with my colleagues, uh, we started that work. And now uh, with the help of guys like Tim Kupferschmidt, who I brought in from um, from Connecticut, it has become the premier lab, maybe even in the world. And people like Frank DiPaolo, who have taken our little a disaster management team and turned it into a national example of how things should be done. Um, and the sacrifices that these folks made to get that kind of uh, expertise and service for New Yorkers is a story that's probably never going to be told. But I'm here to tell you that those people who I worked with and who still toil away there, they do quiet, good work that brings justice to those who have been victims of of crimes. It brings answers to families. And we even have a public health responsibility. It's medical examiners who noticed that too many kids were falling out of windows and they instituted the the window guard law in New York Um, or seatbelts. You know, things like that. That's that's medical examiners. That's people who say, hey, too many crush injuries to the chest from a steering wheel. Let's hold people back. Yeah. yeah so it's it, unsung heroes. Very few people know about the uh, medical legal investigators of this country and the forensic pathologists and what we do. So I hope my book has some it, it moves the needle a little bit. It shows people what we do, how it affects us. Mm-hmm. And um, and shares perhaps with my colleagues how we triumph in the end, because I do. I believe it does. And, and I, I believe it does in an all encompassing way. I believe it does in that it, it holds people's attention. It grabs them. It pulls them in uh, and gets them emotionally invested, Barbara, in in what it is that you do Uh and not only that, it, it emotionally invests them in the people that surrounded you in your life. I know all the way up until the end, I wanted to know exactly what happened with everyone in your life and, and you <laughs> included. Um, I'm so glad that you spent this time with us today and, and talked. Again, we just scratched the surface of what's in this book. Folks, we have a link in the description of this program to uh, get the book and find out for yourself what the dead know, learning about life as a New York City death investigator. Again, I encourage you to go out, get this book, and, and find out exactly uh, what it takes in order to do this stuff. You think this stuff is easy. You think you could go out and do this career. I guarantee you, you probably don't have the stuff to do this. I know I don't have the fortitude to do this, but I bow in your general direction, Barbara, uh, and uh, acknowledge your superiority when it comes to being able to put up with decades of doing this. This is this is not easy work. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much. And thank you for your insightful questions. You You get it. Oh, you definitely well, get it. Well, again, the the I I 
I don't know how much I get. I just know that that um, I I have much respect for it for for everything that you've done and 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 for the 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 knowledge, the fortitude, and the wisdom that it takes to to keep moving forward and to keep acknowledging that there were higher and higher callings that you had to answer and to keep moving forward. It took a lot of bravery too. I don't know if you know that, but it took a lot of bravery for you to keep going despite every emotional cue that you might've been getting to stop. And so that, that took bravery, took courage. And I commend you for that as well. So thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you. Folks, we're going to uh, lighten things up a little bit. It's time now for us to go to dumb crimes and stupid criminals. It's it's crayon news story time. What happened with this dude Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? I need help. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time y'all look forward to. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. Normally, I would say we're going to try to lighten it up just a bit. We're going to start with a little bit of a heavier uh, story. And believe it or not, it's one of those weeks. So I get contacted by, actually, I contacted Bruiser and said, uh, Bruiser, you ready to go this week? Nope, he needs one more week. I contact Mally. Mally says, uh, she can't do it. And Jess says, I can't do it either. So in a pinch, who do you call? Well, you just got to relax and you got to call Uncle Bob. That's what you got to do because that's the guy who's uh, basically going to fill in in a pinch. And and, uh, he's pretty much the the cleaner, as we call him, or the guy who's going to uh, get it done in a pinch. So ladies and gentlemen, from... uh, uh, urban legends and stranger truths here's bob dennis how you doing hey tim how are you I, uh, I know you are scraping the bottom of the barrel no the no, no 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 strikes and you're out yes just call the old man he's at home <laughs> sitting in his rocking chair with his afghan on his shoulders so no i uh, thank you i appreciate being on your show I really do. <laughs> That's not scraping the bottom of the barrel. Uh, I have a uh, Tim Weisberg for that. So uh, <laughs> that's, oh. that's that. No, I'm kidding. I, that's, well, it's always nice to know you're not the last one. Is there somebody lying behind you? Right. No, there's, there's a, uh, there's a few others uh, that I could have called uh, after you. So no, you're, uh, you're definitely not the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> By the way, that's, I'm just kidding for Tim Weisberg. If he's listening. Um, I don't need that getting back. I don't need Tim getting back to me and saying, what I'm the bottom of the barrel. Uh, that's that's not true at all either. Uh, we're going to start it out today. See, I've already gotten I've already gotten you in trouble. Yes, yes, you have. See, look at I'm that. looking forward to this. <laughs> so I'm going to get. I'm going to tell you first of all. I'm going to get complaints. So so don't take this the wrong way, there, Bob. I'm going to get complaints uh, from people about the audio. Just so you know, uh, people don't like phone audio. I don't know what that is. Uh, okay, and that is my fault because I don't have the same uh, high technology that Tim has in his <laughs> studio. I have basically a tin can and a string, and uh, it works for me. So we just have to explain that. Once we explain that, then people can go, oh, okay. Oh, all right. 
So, so see, we're back to the bottom of the barrel again. No, 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 not the bottom of the barrel at all. But let's start it out today uh, in honor of having Barbara Butcher on the show and and talking about uh, death investigators and whatnot. I figured we start off dumb crimes and stupid criminals with, of course, human skulls and other bones. I figured we'd start with that. Uh, and we go to the, the bastion of uh, people keeping human bones and skulls, Kentucky. I mean, that seems to be the place where they, if you're going to decorate the, the, the trailer there, Bob, you're going to do it uh, in Kentucky, right? With human I bones and skulls. Well, they actually have a, a franchise that you can go from store to store and, and pick out, you know, the human bones connected to the thigh bone, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it's, it's a nice store. It's, you know, 72,000 square feet. So. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> well. Would you like those today? <laughs> uh, well, this uh, this particular domicile in uh, Washington, Kentucky, is a little disturbing. Uh, human remains, including dozens of skulls, were found inside a man's house in Kentucky. That, according to authorities, in an affidavit, an agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation noted approximately 40, 40, 40, 40 skulls as well as femurs, hip bones, and a Harvard Medical School bag were discovered during a raid at a at 39-year-old James Knott's home in Bullitt County on Tuesday morning. Here's a quote from uh, Jessica, I believe it is Botello, about the home. The skulls were decorated around the furniture, I, I want to say with care. I don't know why I go back to Christmas carols here. Uh, one skull had a headscarf around it. One skull was located on the mattress where not slept. A Harvard Medical School bag was found inside the residence, Special Agent uh, Sarah J. Cunning noted in the affidavit. Uh, Cunning wrote that the authorities also found a slew of weapons, such as an AK-47 rifle, a 38 Special, charter arms, a revolver, ammunition, grenades, and plates for body armor. So obviously he was thinking about a peaceful mission. Total parts warehouse. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it was. Uh, the FBI, along with the Mount Washington Police Department, executed a warrant in connection with a search for guns and trafficked human remains, which led to Knott's arrest. During the search, an FBI agent asked Knott, asked Knott, asked if anyone else, that doesn't seem to make sense when you read that sentence, uh, asked Knott if anyone else was inside the residence. The document noted, not responded, only my dead friends. <laughs> Ask not whose body belongs to you, but whose body belongs to somebody else. Sorry. <laughs> not who is a convicted felon. There's a shock. Uh, as he was arrested on a gun charge in 2011, was also linked to a nationwide trafficking ring in which several suspects were accused of purchasing and selling stolen human remains, some of which were tied back to Harvard Medical School and a mortuary in Arkansas. There's big wow. time money in body parts. That is just kind of on the borderline bizarre part. I mean, you know, although at Halloween, it's very popular. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, the, the big obsession now, and it's already started, is the 12-foot skeleton at, at Home Depot. You know what? We have one in our neighborhood every Halloween. I mean, the thing is actually scary spooky. The part about this guy's story that is even scarier is that he was selling some of this stuff on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? It's like, you can get anything you want there. That's right. Marketplace is a, is a wonderful thing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, let's move on 
uh, speaking of bizarre, and of course, when you're talking bizarre, you got to go to Florida. A United Airlines passenger was removed from a Florida flight after he grabbed a woman's leg and refused to let go. Now, I think we've all been in that part of passion, uh, that part of uh, infatuation, Bob. I don't know about yeah. you. I know I have been a time or two, but generally it involves alcohol. Uh, but on a flight? Been there, done that, not on a plane. <laughs> not on a plane. Uh, a United Airlines passenger has been charged with two counts of simple battery. After being accused of grabbing a fellow passenger's leg on a flight to Florida, the passenger was escorted off the plane after a touchdown in Fort Lauderdale, according to a video that was shared with the Florida news station. While on board, a passenger accused him of being disruptive and at one point grabbing her leg. The woman in question, Claudia Mondello, told the outlet that he refused to let go of her leg, which was which resulted in a bruise. If that's all it resulted in, I think you get away clean. I mean, that's that's pretty good in the injury department. They weren't like headed for Kentucky, were they? Probably to get some body parts, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Fresh. Just arrived today. Yeah. Well, and this one only has a bruise. On Tuesday, the passenger paid a $1,000 bond and was released from jail. A representative from United Airlines told Insider United Flight 1379 from Dallas International to Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport arrived at the gate and was met by law enforcement. You know, it's not a good flight when that happens. Following a passenger disturbance during taxiing, the passenger was arrested and customers then deplaned normally. Uh, the passenger uh, could not immediately be reached for comment, probably because he's sitting in a, in a jail cell. Yeah. Can I, can I, I know you're going on this story, but I need to go back for just one moment. Oh, no, no, no. I'm done. You go. Okay. Going back to Kentucky. Mm. And I, and I'm sure that you know about this and others do as well, but there is a state park, which is known as the big bone lick state historic park. (laughs) Okay. Okay, That can go a lot of different directions, but I was just glancing at it and it says, Hey, big bone licks museum exhibits are fresh and new. The park is in working in cooperation with the friends of the Big Bone Lick at the Cincinnati Museum Center. They work together to create and produce all new exhibits for the park's visitor center. Hey! <laughs> Whoa. Yes, that's the Big Bone Lick, and you're on your own with that, buddy. I'm not going there. Yeah, well, <laughs> they, we'll, get to the, we'll get to that section of the program at the end. We do the not safe for work stuff at, at the end. You know, being on this show is probably going to ruin my reputation. What little I had to begin with. <laughs> yes, we're going to destroy it by the end. There's there's some stuff at the end of the program that's not safe for work, but we tell people to turn their listening devices down if they're in mixed company, near children, or at work. That's <laughs> that's that part of the program. Yeah, I look forward to it. I think. Well, you should. You should. They're, they're, they tend to be quite funny stories. That's for sure. All right. Uh, moving on. A man found dead in his freezer was hiding from police. (laughs) Okay. And believe it or not, we're coming right here to the Northland. We're coming back to Biwabic, Minnesota, which, by the way, I had a crush on a woman in Biwabic once uh, back in college. Were you grabbing her leg? Yes, I grabbed her leg tightly and and asked her, please, not to board a flight. (laughs) We might both get in trouble. Yeah. Many people didn't realize that there were flights going into Biwabic. Uh, well, uh, she drove home, I believe, from from college. It was a long drive, you know. By Wabic is, I think, I think it's up past the Duluth, if I remember right. 
I have no clue. I grew up in Minnesota, and I have no clue where uh, is. It's a long ways away, Bob, that's for sure. A man, and it was a long ways away to this woman's heart, too. She was just as cold as the town of Biwabic. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. In so many ways. So many ways. A man found dead in a freezer in Minnesota last month was hiding from police, according to investigators. The body of 34-year-old Brandon Lee Bushman of Babbitt, Minnesota, was found in a chest freezer in the basement of an unoccupied home in the town of Biwabic on June 26th. Investigators believe Bushman was in the house hiding because there was an active warrant for his arrest. They believe that he got into the freezer to hide on his own accord, perhaps because officers were in the area. The freezer was an older model that could not be opened from the inside. I think we all assume that you can open from the inside Ooh. because of the newer models, right? Yeah, and that almost goes back to that previous story on a previous show where the people forgot to push the plunger on the inside of the freezer door. The guy froze to death. Yes, Arby's. Where I don't go anymore just because of that story. You ruined it for me. I'm sorry. Well, people ruined, uh, not only did they ruin, well, well, I, sh I should say I had Arby's last night for dinner. We have the meat. Yeah, it, it didn't ruin it for me. I, I have an iron stomach and a, and a forgetful mind, so I, I pretty much can eat in any fast food restaurant, except for Wendy's, because their chili triggers my gallbladder. Probably more than I really needed to know at that point. <laughs> well, hey, yeah. know, we're all friends here, you know? I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Uh, so this suspect thought that the freezer was going to open from the inside, which it was, it was an older one and didn't. So perhaps um, he had a bit of bad luck there. The house had no electricity, by the way, and the freezer was not running when Bushman's body was found. So, you know, Ooh. that was a nice surprise for investigators when they opened that. Wow. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun, yeah. There's a lot that we learned from Barbara Butcher today on the program. Uh, that that little bit that Barbara taught us on the program taught me that I, I never wanted her job, and I never wanted to run into that. You know, back when uh, I was a news reporter, because I was a news reporter for 11 years, there was a, a medical examiner, uh, a coroner. They were, at that time, it was a combined position where I was working. And uh, there had been a call of a dead body that was underneath a bridge by a river that was not far from the station I was at. So I walked over there with my little recorder and, uh, you know, my notebook and uh, the uh, doctor who will remain nameless. Uh, he has since passed away, but that's all right. Uh, they buried him. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they were all lined up around there. And I walked over and I saw that uh, he was standing there. He was smoking a cigarette, which I later found out he did so that he wouldn't smell things, which is probably a good thing. Right. But I walked over there and the paramedics went over and they grabbed the body by the legs and they pulled the body. They were going to pull it up the hill and the head went rolling down the hill. <gasps> and I was like, okay, that's fun. And I looked at him and I said, Dr. So-and-so, uh, what the heck happened with that? And he looks at me and says, well, kid, it's maggot. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. So, eh, there was no lunch that day. No, no, I think uh, skip it and See, wait for dinner. This is why you don't have Uncle Bob on the show. <laughs> no, that's okay. You know, some of the stuff Barbara Butcher said today, that, that actually is just a warm-up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's all right. We can, we can stomach that one today. Does it bother you that her last name is Butcher? You know, it's ironic. She brings that up in the book that uh, it's ironic that her last name is Butcher and she ended up with a, with a, a death investigator job. Pretty wild. I mean, you know, some people's jobs, I guess, are just meant to be. Yeah, that's true. That's true.
Uh, we'll move on to this next story uh, because you want to talk about ironic. This this police commissioner is in hot water uh, in Detroit, and I think you'll get a kick out of this story here, Bob, because this one uh, this one kind of takes a cake. A police commissioner is caught in a car with a prostitute and has a bizarre explanation for it. He says he's done talking about it. I guess you can just make things go away. Sure, why not? I mean, it works, right? For some people. <laughs> Well, when you're not quite done with the explanation, it's it's a little hard to just say I'm done talking about it when we're not done talking about it. Well, it depends on what they were doing, you know, and it might have been that he had a serious conversation trying to convert this person from a life of wayward sin and lustfulness. <laughs> or he could try to talk her into it. Who knows? You know, that's <laughs> or he couldn't talk her into a cheaper price. <laughs> a member of the. That's- What's it's that? the old line about it's the old line about the two people and the guy says says you know uh, that he's ready to do this and the woman says well what do you think I am and he says we've already established what you are now we're negotiating price <laughs> that's for sure a member of the Detroit Board of Police Commissioners who was caught in a car with a prostitute by law enforcement uh, oh so he got caught by his own is claiming that the incident is a big misunderstanding. And of course it is. Uh, Wayne County Sheriff's Office deputies say they found Brian Ferguson in his car at about 7.15 a.m. Wednesday in Detroit engaging in a sex act. Oh, he's a morning riser. (laughs) (laughs) It's the morning wood. That's true. Uh, With a prostitute. Uh, Undercover narcotics officers were in the area at the time. Boy, is that kismet. Uh, And saw Ferguson with a woman who was known to them. So they knew she was a prostitute. Uh, Ferguson has denied the allegations as a big misunderstanding. His quote is, I'm done talking about it. That's just not what happened. He told that to the Detroit Free Press. Ferguson claims that a woman whom he did not know tried to get into his truck on Wednesday morning when law enforcement just pulled right up on me. On a scale of one to bullshit, how would you rate that one? We have a winner, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your cards. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I'm thinking that uh, he got caught with his pants down. Uh, literally. You know, uh, here's the deal. I am looking at a picture. She is not a bad-looking lady. Really? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So. Uh, the other quote here is, this is rough. This is rough to tell because now I'm going to have to have this conversation with my family, Ferguson said, adding that he told, or he had told the deputies that he is police commissioner and wasn't hiding anything. Well, no. That's part of the reason he got in trouble. He wasn't hiding anything. That's right. He was doing it at 7.15 in the morning out in the open. Uh, Wayne County Sheriff's Office Captain Jason Bates said that Ferguson had asked law enforcement on the scene whether they could help him out. That was in quotes. <laughs> I, I don't know. Was he getting tired? Did he need the help? Uh, you know, it's, I'm not going there. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be nice. <laughs> okay. It's not easy. I'm holding back here, just so you know. Okay. Okay. You don't have to, but if you'd like to, that's, that's your prerogative. At that time, Mr. Brian Ferguson stepped out, identified himself as a Detroit police commissioner. Bates told Fox 2 Detroit, a title or position that doesn't make him above the law. That's in quotes. Uh, Ferguson was issued a misdemeanor citation for indecent or obscene conduct involving a sex act with a prostitute. 
Ferguson is expected to resign from his position on the Detroit Board of Police Commissioners. Ferguson, who previously served as chair of the police watchdog group, released a statement Wednesday saying that he would take a step back from participating in board meetings. He might take a step forward when, you know, he's doing the thing, but he took a step back (laughs) from board activities. Uh, Today, multiple media outlets released... And then, of course, my story resets as I say the word released. Hello. Uh, they released. Isn't, isn't that how he got in trouble to begin with? Exactly. It was it, maybe it wasn't the follow through. It was the release. Hello. Uh, today, multiple media outlets released information alleging indecent conduct this morning. The allegation is untrue and the situation is a big misunderstanding. Ferguson said in his statement. You do, or said, I do not want this personal matter to become a distraction from the important oversight work this board has to do. In other words, <laughs> look at this hand while the other hand is doing something else. Uh, for that reason, I am making the decision to step back from the board meetings for a time. The Detroit Board of Police Commissioners did not immediately respond to Fox News Digital's request for comment. But if they did, they'd probably snicker titter and then probably ask for a number. <laughs> And pictures. Yes, and pictures. Strictly for the file. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> pictures that, that don't, will be protected somewhere. That's right. Pictures or it didn't happen. <laughs> that's wow. For, that's for sure. Um, so I got to wonder at times, you know, if you're a drug dealer, you got to have a way to get away. And if you got to have a way to get away from the police, they have pretty powerful cars. You probably should have a pretty powerful vehicle. In this case, Bob, this drug dealer didn't have such a powerful vehicle. He had an electric scooter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, and if, he was a beginner. Yes, he was. And, and, and he started at a late age, actually. Or actually, it was an early age, I should say. It wasn't even a late age. Um, and for this, we, go, of course, go to Florida. Because if you're going to make an, a getaway on an electric scooter, it's going to happen in the Sunshine State. Uh, we go to Collier County, Florida, where a man riding an electric scooter, and by the way, we have to thank Margot for this story, a man riding an electric scooter was arrested after deputies found drugs in his backpack on Wednesday. According to the Collier County Sheriff's Office, deputies pulled over 22-year-old Kelvin, I believe this is Blanc, uh, when he was riding his electric scooter in the wrong lane with no lights on. At 125 miles an hour. <laughs> yes. And he it, was using no power, just his leg. It, it too was on drugs. Uh, <laughs> CCSO states that during the traffic stop, the deputy developed probable cause to search Blanc. Uh, 152 grams of cocaine fentanyl mixture were in, and, and 42 pills, by the way, were found in his backpack. It was a full backpack, I believe. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, officials say Blanc was arrested and faces 11 felony charges, two for traffic, trafficking fentanyl and cocaine, nine for possession of other drugs. Wow. Well, you know, that puts the stupid in stupid criminals. <laughs> that does, yeah. Most definitely. Uh, the only thing better than this was the, the show that you had where you had the gentleman on the tractor who was trying to end the slow getaway. And you and Bruiser talked about it one time where yeah. the guy was like in wherever it is that bruiser is and they was trying to get away and it was like a slow pursuit kind of thing it's like okay that's a florida type thing i know it wasn't but it was, I'm, I'm agreeing with you i'm saying florida's got a lot of weirdness it was north carolina where they had the tractor yep. chase yeah yeah wow and you know wow. what's what's fun is that would have gone on all day 
<laughs> had, had the cops not put a stop to it. Yeah, well, he wasn't quite done with the field yet when he, when they stopped him. <laughs> <laughs> Chase him up one way and down the other. Chores first, then the legal activity second. You always got to, you know, you always got to put priorities to those things. Mm-hmm. I got to ask you, Bob, have you ever had anything stolen by a delivery driver, whether it be part of your meal or maybe a lawn gnome or anything like that? Uh, actually, uh, yes, I've had that. I've had uh, packages that have been taken, and uh, we actually had a neighbor who had uh, a bench stolen out of their front yard. Really? And and uh, several things. My neighbor, who lives immediately next door to me, uh, used to have, um, oh my, what do they call those little uh, uh, gothic things that... Uh, oh, um, a gargoyle. Gargoyles. He used to have gargoyles all around his yard, which is kind of weird, but it was okay. I was good with it. And they started disappearing. And... Uh, he, being a proactive person, set up a camera and sat up at night with his weapon and said, I'm going to get him. <laughs> and uh, he did. He, he eventually caught him and turned him in. So, wow. Yeah. This next story is curious uh, because of all the things that a delivery driver could steal, I wouldn't think this would be it. Uh, a cat was stolen by a pizza delivery driver, according to a Colorado uh, family. Yeah. Yeah. Of all the things you would steal... A cat would not be uh, high on my list. No, I, I'm, I'm waiting to hear this. A Colorado family said a Domino's pizza delivery driver took their cat and they have security camera video to prove it. In this day and age, why you would take a family pet? Be, because, and a cat. Yeah, and a cat. <laughs> Actually, I, 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 there's a, a thing in Barbara Butcher's book that proves one of the points I've been trying to prove on this show for years. And it's in the book, and I was going to have Barbara repeat it, but I didn't. I didn't want to make her the bad guy on today's show. I want to hear Well, I'll tell you. Um, I, I could read di- directly from the book, but uh, basically, she points out, and again, it's a scientific fact, I'm sorry, cat lovers, but there was a case uh, in the book and, and again, we have a link in the description of this program to go get Barbara's new book where there was a lady who, and she's talking about hoarding in one whole chapter of the book. Mm-hmm. This lady was hoarding. I forget what it was she was hoarding, but she was, she was doing like an eating hoarding thing where she was, she was going on an extreme diet and she had lost 20 pounds on an already thin frame and she was eating nothing but Land O'Lakes butter. But the thing that was sad was that's all she was feeding her little dog, too. So the dog and she died of starvation. And Officer Ortiz, who was on the scene with her, said, now that's just sad. You would figure the dog would turn on her and eat her for survival, at least, or or try to do something to survive. And Barbara brought it up to Officer Ortiz. See, that's the thing. Dogs are pack animals, and they follow the head of the pack. And this lady was the head of this dog's pack. So the dog will go down willingly, even if it's starving to death. Cats, on the other hand, do not. (laughs) Cats, as they are starving, will take you down. And if they see that your body is dead, the first thing they do is go up and feed on it. Dogs do not. Dogs will not feed on your body. That's the last thing they'll do. They're, so for all folks who have cats, when you go to sleep tonight, 
keep a light on. That's right. So now I'm going to get a bunch of angry emails, but for every angry email I get, I will take a screenshot of that particular passage of the book and send it on. It is scientific fact. Okay. Uh, many, many, many years ago, when I was young, um, my dad, your grandfather, we might as well be clear about that, mm-hmm. Loved a place that uh, it was a, a Chinese restaurant in Fridley. The Chinese restaurant, I'm not going to say the name of it. Oh, I don't even know if it's. A- I know the one you're talking about. I loved it. Yeah, go ahead. It, at that time, it was located in the middle of a junkyard. Mm-hmm. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He loved it. It had a very common name. I'm not going to say it. Mm-hmm. And we used to get food from there all the time. Now, I moved away. And I had become a news reporter. And one day I read a report that said that this restaurant was using small animals to help fill out their menu. Yeah. My dad was like, wow, I knew it tasted familiar. He was like, whoa, okay, dad, I don't <laughs> want to know about that. You know? <laughs> yeah. And they had a, they made the most awesome poo-poo platter when we were kids. And now I wonder, I, I mean, every time I think of it. Real poo-poo. Tim, it was real poo-poo, just so you know. <laughs> Were there flies involved with any of this? Or No, 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 no. But the scary thing is, is that there's a restaurant in town that models a lot of their dishes based on that restaurant because it was so popular. Well, it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think they, they model the ingredients, put it that way. I- I hope it. it was very strange because it was in the middle of an automobile junkyard. Yeah. 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 And it uh, and the food was wonderful. Absolutely terrific. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't find better food. Yeah. So I'm I just I digressed and I took you away from the the no, intellectual. That's fine. Here. That's fine. So we're talking about uh, a Domino's pizza delivery driver who took a family in Colorado, took their cat and they have security camera video to prove it. While their neighbors got a pizza, the Adams County family said they were left with grief after going over the video of the driver with their cat Pinto last Saturday. He got in the middle of the street and he, when he saw someone pull up, Jennifer, I believe this is, Ch- is this Chumel? Yeah, Jennifer Chumel, uh, the mother of the family, said of their cat, in the video, Pinto, one of the several family cats, is seen running towards a Domino's delivery car. She petted him, and then a few minutes go by, and he's in the car with her, and they're driving off, Chumel said. They were delivering pizza to my neighbor across the street. So they weren't delivering pizza to the Chumel family. It was the neighbors across the street, okay? You can see Pinto approach the car, and the delivery driver interact with the cat. Another angle, Chumel says, shows Pinto in the car with the driver. Shortly afterwards, the video appears to show the Domino's employee driving away. The family has been left wondering where the, their cat has been taken. Taken advantage of just because he got out, Chumel said. It happens. People lose their pets. It is nice if someone returned them or not to ask if it belonged to you. Uh, Chumel said she called several locations around her neighborhood. She spoke with the store manager of a nearby location and provided the video. She also said she was contacted by the driver herself. Here's where it gets creepy. You ready? It's not creepy enough already. Okay, go ahead. All right. So she actually contacts the driver who took Pinto. The driver tells me, you're accusing me of this and I didn't do it, Chumel said. 
And I was like, well, I have video that you did. And she just basically says, it wasn't me. You're mistaken and hung up. <laughs> okay. Uh, News Nation's affiliate station, KDVR, ironic, uh, contacted the store, but the manager would not comment. So the manager's covering for the employee. You think this has happened before? Maybe some other cats have gone missing? I think Is so. This with compulsion of some kind, like a weird, freaky kind of, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the family reached out to officials with the Adams County Sheriff's Office, and here's the third part of the cover-up. The Adams Uh-oh. County Sheriff's Office told KDVR... It was a civil matter. <laughs> uh, I understand that, I guess. You know, because there was no death involved. There was no criminal um, activity other than the cat got in the car and went along with the person. May have gone willfully. True. True. But just bizarre. A bizarre story all the way around. You know, when I was a kid, uh, Grandpa used to take us and... Uh, he put us in the car and he'd say, we're going on vacation. And we'd drive out to the middle of nowhere. We'd get out and then he'd leave. <laughs> you know, it was interesting. So. I, I guess that, that was very Don Rickles of you, by the way. <laughs> um, all right. One more story. Then we get to the not safe for work part of today's program, which, uh, by the Uh-oh. way, prepare yourselves, kids. If you uh, if, if you do have kids listening to this, I don't know why you do. Um, or if you're at work, get prepared to put in your headphones or turn turn your devices down. Uh, here we go. Crank it up! Crank it up! <laughs> uh, this is the part of the program where we're hitting people with food, kids. Uh, not enough that we have Domino's drivers taking our pets, but a uh, it's one thing if you're going to hit somebody with food. It's another when you hit the wrong person with food. Oh. Yeah, it's a good waste of food. Yes, yeah. Uh, this woman hit the wrong man with a burrito, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> what a mess. Yes, indeed. Uh, a victim was beamed in the face. Oh, see what I did there. With an airborne Mexican delicacy. This, uh, this burrito was thrown by a woman. Of course, we go to Florida. We're going back to Florida where being hit with delicacies seems to be a thing in Florida. A woman uh, thrown... Or, I'm sorry, a burrito thrown by a woman, not a woman thrown by a burrito. That would be a That's even bigger story. That would be a bigger story. A burrito thrown by a woman at a Florida restaurant missed its intended target, instead hitting a male victim in the face, according to police who arrested the alleged food tosser. Investigators were called Wednesday evening to Rick's Reef, which is in St. Petersburg. Or, I'm sorry, St. Pete Beach uh, in the eatery there due to a female subject yelling at customers. The woman in question was 46-year-old Sarah Ann Cachera, who lives with her boyfriend at his condo just off Gulf Boulevard from Rick's. A witness told police that Cachera was in a verbal dispute with a man not identified in an arrest affidavit. At one point, Cachera threw a burrito at the subject. <laughs> you know, burritos aren't, especially when you go to an eatery, aren't cheap. No. And they're and they're not really they're not they're not really hard. I mean they're really no. so, you know they're kind of kind of limp. Yeah, and they come I mean, they come apart easy. Yeah, I mean okay. So, so you got to kind of ball that sob up and give it a good toss. You know, I mean, it, you know, the good news is she's going to be the new relief pitcher for one of the teams in Florida. They're just negotiating contracts. <laughs> it's true. 
I couldn't hit that burrito with a bean. <laughs> the airborne burrito did not strike the man with whom Cachero quarreled, however. Instead, the Mexican delicacy hit the victim in the face. Uh, the affidavit does not indicate whether the victim was injured by the burrito. Evidently, control is an issue, so she's going to, to double A first, and then she'll make her way up. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, Cochera departed the restaurant before cops arrived. <laughs> she took the coward's way out, uh, but she remained nearby and was not cooperative with deputies. Cochera was charged with disorderly conduct, a misdemeanor, and was booked into the county jail. She bonded out of custody early Thursday morning. How much, Bob, do you think a flying burrito goes for when you're bonding out? What was she charged with? Disorderly conduct? Yeah, disorderly conduct. $313. Ooh, very specific. No, I'll give you one more try here. Uh, 124. You're close. When you hit the happy medium, it's $250 bond. Wow. Yep. Mm, not that bad, I guess. It's an expensive, it's an expensive burrito. burrito. Yeah. Huh? Jinx, you owe me a Coke. It's an expensive yeah. burrito. Yeah. Okay. Good luck collecting that, buddy. Exactly. Uh, if you're wondering uh, what kind of what kind of career you have to have in order to get stressed out enough to throw your food? Nah, 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 nah. Oh, you see, okay, uh, I see you and raise you. Injury, <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Sit around and belch all day. We're just toasting each other with our cokes, by the way. Uh, Cochera's LinkedIn profile lists her as a financial advisor. That's what gets you keyed up enough to throw your food. Uh, <laughs> She is a financial advisor with a financial services company in the Tampa Bay area. By the way, this isn't her first go around with the law, by the way, Bob. Uh, She was arrested last month for allegedly punching her 66-year-old boyfriend in the face during an argument in their residence. So the burrito was the softest thing he's ever been hit with. Wow. Mm -hmm. So she's got issues with, you know, this significant other of hers. If I'm him, I'm out of there. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. One of these days, she's going to, you know, she's going to pick up like a sharp taco and nail him. <laughs> It'll be a hard shell. Yeah. Uh, the the victim, cops reported, had a red mark over his right eye consistent with a closed fist punch during that arrest. Prosecutors subsequently declined to pursue a domestic battery case against Kachera in that case. A decision that came two weeks after Kachera's bow requested that the misdemeanor count be dropped in a judicial no contact order against Kachera order be ceased or eased rather not to see was it eased yeah be eased yeah uh i don't think there's a third strike in that pitcher's uh, future i think maybe two is enough this is a whole kind of dysfunctional relationship they've got going here which reminds me of these two people there's a sadist and a masochist okay and they're, they're talking to each other and the uh, masochist says, hit me, beat me, hurt me, whip me. And the sadist says, no, you'd like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. All right. Here it comes. Hey, now don't regret having me on? No, I, I still don't regret having you on. Oh, you got a high tolerance for pain, buddy. I do. Yeah. Well, look at all the injuries I have. I mean, come on. Uh All right, now's the time, folks, where we get into the Not Safe for Work, the NSFW part of our show. So if you've got your listening devices up at work, I don't know why you would, or up around the kids, it's time to turn it down. We're going to get into, uh, we've got four stories here, which aren't suitable for the kids or for your boss, one or the other. 
It's a lovely day in the neighborhood. A lovely day. For- Hello, kiddies. <laughs> Can you take it? I thought that you could. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's it's. Uh, we're going to start first of all with an indecent image during a screening of Super Mario. <laughs> okay. You ever been to uh, one movie and get another? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That uh, it's uncomfortable. That's for sure. Especially if you have the if you have the kids with you. Uh, despite a barrage of near, <laughs> nearly early reviews, the Super Mario Brothers movie went on to obliterate the global box office. Uh, lots of kids and parents alike went to go see it, collecting $1.343 billion worldwide in its path and super smashing several records along the way. But long before its release, the film was mired in controversy after it was announced that American actor Chris Pratt is the titular super-powered plumber. You would think you'd get a little more of an Italian voice. Let's be stereotypical here, folks, uh, who has been portrayed as Italian throughout the video game's history. Thankfully, that controversy disappeared when the Super Mario Brothers movie hit the theaters, and it didn't. As it didn't stop scores of moviegoers from enjoying the movie, but now something else may discourage some families, at least in one theater. Uh, And what's that? Well, BBC News Northern Ireland has reported that police in Northern Ireland are investigating an incident in which an indecent image allegedly appeared during a screening of the Super Mario Brothers movie at London Derry's Waterside Theater on Friday, July 7th. Children of elementary school age were in attendance during the screening, which reportedly featured the brief appearance of a partially undressed woman on the screen. Wow. Okay. Might have been left over from the teacher. Yeah, I, I somehow don't think that uh, Mario's hammer made an appearance in that deal. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to get taken away with that cop in the previous car. <laughs> yes, that, that that Detroit cop probably made an appearance to make an arrest, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Huh? Wow. Uh, taking to their Facebook page later that day, as per BBC News Northern Ireland, the Waterside Theater and Arts Center issued an official apology and described the incident as unfortunate but serious, adding that they were working with the relevant authorities. The welfare of our visitors is always our main concern, and we will be working with the relevant authorities, they said. Who are the relevant authorities when it comes to uh, naked women on the screen during the Super Mario Brothers movie? Not real sure. <laughs> the thing the thing is about this is it's the BBC. So they're going to be doing this story, and there's going to be some guy going, In recently, at a movie theater in Northampton, there was accidentally shown a flashing image of a woman on the screen. You know, just totally deadpan. It's like, wow. They're all getting all excited about it, but yeah. sorry. No, no, no. It, it, uh, you just found the most boring way to describe a naked woman on screen. Congratulations. I, I, oh, okay, that, that's really going to do something for everybody. Uh, they say we offer our sincere apologies to those affected, and then they handed out free candy, and everybody was happy. Mm, boy, I'd be... <laughs> Hello, children. Here's some free candy. We know you saw this image of a naked woman, but now here's some candy. Come join us over here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, no. Zip. <laughs> the, the report also states that the police service of Northern Ireland issued a statement saying inquiries remain ongoing and anyone with information that could help with this investigation is asked to contact police. I'll tell you what, just look up at the projection room and you probably have your suspect right there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Guy's like, I'm sorry, I don't know where that happened to come from. <laughs> wow. And it was in Northern Ireland, you say? Northern Ireland, yep. Yeah. Oh, all right. So it wouldn't, but it wouldn't necessarily have been that accent. That it would have been something else. It was an Irish accent. Yeah. Well, unless the projectionist was British. That's, that's the problem. He snuck over on the, the water, got the picture, put it in there just to uh, corrupt the Irish people. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a, a hundreds of years of, of uh, tyranny has been balled up into the Super Mario Brothers movie unveiling is what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's in a de-escalated form, but they still manage to get a jive in there every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. I see where you're going. You know, I'm still kind of hung up on the whole uh, Super Mario Brothers thing and about how they talk about how uh, it is also representative of, of, of magic mushrooms with the uh, red yeah. caps and stuff. And see, I was never in. Mario came after I was, you know, growing up. So I wasn't really into all that kind of stuff. But now I've been reading about it, and, you know, in the past tense. And I'm like, well, I didn't know about that. Shoot, that's something brand new to me. <laughs> Did you see the... Um, uh, when uh, Pedro Pascal was on SNL and they did the the serious HBO take on this was before they did they had the Super Mario Brothers movie out they did the the HBO parody of yep. Mario. Yep, I saw that. And yep, he's ad- he's addicted to the mushrooms. <laughs> yes, it. Uh, well, I don't want to get sidetracked on Saturday Night Live, but yes, I saw that. It was I thought it was. Funny. It was very funny. Yeah, but it's I mean. But you're right. They did the whole play on the fact that the mushrooms are actually based on magic mushrooms. And, and yeah, I mean, they nailed it. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was brilliant. Well, I don't know if I'd say brilliant, but, you know, yeah. When I was in high school, I had a, a classmate who used to say, Bob, I'm going to go out and we're going to hunt mushrooms. What did I know? I thought it was like they were having steaks or something. You know, I didn't know he was out looking for stuff. <laughs> out he was. It was the 70s, you know. I was a, that was a nerd, you know. Okay, so I, I got to ask the question because there's no repercussions now. Did you ever do mushrooms or did you ever do ayahuasca? I have, no, I have been the most pure, un, you know, sullied person in the world. I did not uh, even drink until I was 21. Wow. That's how much of a nerd. No, I mean, I mean, you've got people who are out there slamming down Jack and doing everything else. And I've, to this day, I've never had hard liquor. I have wow. had beer. Yeah, I've had beer. I've had wine. Not an I had a lot of beer between the ages of about 22 and 28. Um, I don't remember a whole lot. The year 24 is kind of a, kind of a mystery. But anyways, uh, so beer and wine. And today, nowadays, I might have a little rum in my diet Pepsi, but uh, nothing, nothing hard. Nothing, nothing like that. Never did, never did pot. Never did, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And the irony behind this is that back in the 70s until the early 72, 73-ish, uh, you could actually go to a drugstore and you could buy amphetamines and barbiturates right off the counter. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden they went, well, these people are acting really strange. Maybe we should not be selling them this stuff. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Very true. Very true. Interesting. So could I ask you the same question in return or should I just stop at that and just move on? Uh, we should probably go in the next, uh, next story. Yeah. So tell me about him all these years you spent. Oh, no. Sorry. No, I haven't done. I haven't done any mushrooms. I haven't done any ayahuasca. I haven't done anything like that. We could call up Aaron Rodgers. I'm sure he's done all of it. He's probably got a potpourri bag full of them. But yeah. he's probably got a whole section in his locker there in New York now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm, 
I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to let that go. I'm going to be nice. I'm just going to, you know, I was going to say something about whether they had to make sure that he wasn't like, you know, cross pollinating with the other members of the team or something, you know, and with, you know, uh, regards to available products. But I don't want to say that. That would be, that would be mean of me. That'd be rude of me. I shouldn't say that. No. Yeah. Well, it's just fair. It's, it's fairness in journalism. That's all it is. Is that what it is? I think so. I'm just making stuff up now. Uh, we can move on to the next story, though. Uh, you know, when cops have to search for a certain contraband, of course, they've got to go in some places that most people would not want to go. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, and that's one of these stories. That's why it's in our not safe for work section here, Bob. Uh, this story has to do with a man who uh, is an accused fraudster and, believe it or not, had a bullet hidden beneath his testicles. That, according to jail personnel who last found the live round while conducting a strip search, which happens when you happen to go to jail. Police allege that 30, or I'm sorry, 24-year-old Michael Keanu Brennan. Yes, we've re- reached the point where uh, now the younger generation is being named after uh, movie stars. <laughs> okay, I, I will listen and see what you say. I'm, I'm trying to think of what name you would have but if you weren't Tim, but go with it. All right. Uh, you know, you were named after the little boy on Lassie. Y- well, you, you say that, but <laughs> I, I, I'll i take that shirt. Does your mom listen to the show? Am I going to get in trouble now? Yeah, you are. Yeah, she does listen every episode. Um, well, I'll just uh, wrong. <laughs> Police allege that 24-year-old Michael Keanu Brennan utilized stolen information on a credit card to pay for a $3,000 17-night stay at a vacation home in Indian Rocks Beach, two blocks from the Gulf of Mexico. That'll get you in trouble. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Brennan was arrested at his rental where police found numerous driver's licenses, checks, social security cards, credit cards, and debit cards in all different names. Uh, Brennan reportedly copped to buying an identification off the Internet, which is handy, and using it, and using it to buy the, the lodging. Uh, While being booked into jail, Brennan was warned that additional penalties would apply if he was hiding drugs or contraband. Though Brennan claimed not to be carrying, an unfortunate jail deputy located a 22 caliber round of ammunition that was positioned. That's that's, that's what? That's tiny, 22 caliber. Well, let's not comment on the size of the guy's balls. I mean, you know, he's already been caught. <laughs> I wasn't saying that. I'm talking about his caliber. You know, I mean, of course, that's not going to help him in prison. Let me tell you, they're going to be finding other sources. Anyways, go ahead. That's true. That's true. Uh, so, an unfortunate jail dep- deputy located a 22 caliber round of ammunition that was positioned underneath the suspect's testicles. This, according to a court affidavit. Uh, the bullet was collected by a second sheriff's deputy. <laughs> Evidently, the first one didn't want to touch. <laughs> wow. <laughs> almost, I'll, me next, me next, me next. <laughs> uh, and it was confirmed that it had not been fired and it was still alive. Oh, I'm not going there. I'm I not going there. That's, that's some close, uh, close inspection. Yeah. Close inspection. Yeah. yeah. Upon discovery, I mean, you've really got to be dedicated to your job in this instance to be digging around looking for a twenty-two caliber shell in a place that you know most yeah. people don't go. Yeah, yeah. Upon uh, discovering the ammo, Brennan was hit with an additional felony charge for introducing contraband into a detention facility. Brennan was released from custody uh, 
this morning after posting $15,150 bond. Brennan, who wow. appears. Yeah, I know. That's that's quite a bit. Wow. Yeah. He must have been at risk of, a, of running off or something. He must have other things in his background to have that high of a. I mean, probably, what was he arrested for again? He was arrested initially and initially arrested for utilizing stolen information on a credit card to pay for $3,000, 17 night stay, which isn't a huge, that's not a huge deal. He's staying at the Ritz. Yeah. But, but then they also found numerous driver's licenses, checks, social security cards. There's, there's different fraud charges. I think that are probably uh, being racked up against him. Huh? Um, I know I keep telling these side notes and just tell me to shut up. If I no, keep go giving ahead. Mystery. Go ahead. There was a uh, book a while back called Kingpin. Mm-hmm. And it was about the guy, you know how you go to the, to, to a, like a restaurant and they have that little cube that they put on the phone and they walk up and you pay them and they, they swipe it through that little jobby. Yep. Uh, it was a guy who invented that, who was doing exactly that. He was stealing the metallic information off cards. He would go and he'd take their card. And before he rang them to the register, he would swipe them through his own system. And then he would bundle them. He was out in New York. He would bundle them. And he was selling them to the Russian mafia, which in turn were buying products in Europe. And then turning around, they, you know, it didn't cost them anything because they were using somebody else's money. They would buy them. And then something that might cost $1,000, they'd turn around and sell for like 100 bucks. And uh, most of it was behind the Iron Curtain. And the Iron Curtain doesn't exist anymore. But all right, in Russia. And... Uh, they finally caught the guy, and they put him in, in prison. And, uh, and again, the name of the book was Kingpin. Uh, but um, they put him in prison, and they thought, well, you know what? We should utilize this guy. We should figure out how to get an angle on him. Yeah. And so they had him help with trying to catch people. And he did he help people. But they always seemed to be just a little bit behind the curve on, curve on all this. Turns out that he was still doing it. Oh. And then finally, the guy went, wait a minute. This dude's still doing it. So now today, the guy whose name I can't think of um, is locked in a cell, and all he has is a piece of paper and a pencil. That's it. Really? Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting book. It's a good book. It's called Kingpin. It was out quite some time ago. It's still out. Yet, uh, we were talking about the Delphi murders last week, and the man who's in jail for the Delphi murders was given a tablet, and he broke it. He, he didn't want access to the outside world, which most most people in jail would kill for. Weird. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. don't I don't get some people's kids. That's for sure. Some people don't get us. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Um, let's let's move. On. We have two stories left here on dumb crime, stupid criminals. Uh, we we're talking about pantsless cops uh, earlier in the show. Let's talk about a pantsless man in a priest's purple vestments breaking into a New York City church and vandalizing a shrine. Again, some people's kids, Bob. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's just, there's a whole lot of hangups in that one. But go ahead. Sorry. There go is. Ahead. There's an entire psychological profile here that I don't know that anybody wants to go down for for quite some time. Uh, An unhinged man wearing a purple priestly vestment robe and no pants was arrested over the weekend for vandalizing a Manhattan shrine to the first American Catholic saint. This according to cops and witnesses. 42-year-old Walter Chisholm broke into Our Lady of Rosary Catholic Church through a window Saturday morning and entered its shrine to St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Uh, where he damaged a large crucifix. 
This according to police and photos. A volunteer at the State Street Church discovered the trespasser but was run off by Chisholm, as were other workers. This is my house, the man was heard muttering to staffers as he chased them out of the building. He was then found pacing back and forth on the church's steps while in the robe and holding a bottle of wine and a statue of the Virgin Mary. Okay. <laughs> Yowzer. Yeah, there's a bunch of things you're going to hell for. I mean, in the Catholic religion, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, 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 I'm just like you said, there's a whole psychological profile there. There was a story a while back in, in the news about uh, the, this kid who was a juvenile, and uh, he uh, had got, appeared before the judge, and the judge had given him community service as the way to try and make up for whatever sins it was he had done against the community. And he also was assigned to a church, a Catholic church. And he went to the Catholic church. They signed him in. The officers to the probation officer said, yes, I'll be back for him later. The priest said, that's fantastic. That's great. Here's a vacuum. Just taking vacuum the church is an easy thing, but it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And they said, fine. So he, well, the priest walked away and the vacuum was going and it had been quite some time. And, uh, the priest was like, wow, he's really vacuuming a lot. He's doing a really good job. But when he got back out into uh, the main part of the church, uh, the vacuum was running and it was abandoned and uh, the candlesticks were missing from the altar. Oh. So he had grabbed those and booked it. Jeez. Like, where are you going to sell that? But uh, anyways. Did I, so. did I mention there was more to this story? <laughs> I'm sorry, I interrupted no, no. you. So I'm new at this, working with somebody, so I'm, you know, that's, I'm used to just in a room all by myself. That's okay. The, the, I didn't even get to the best part yet. Are you ready? Sorry, yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. All right. He attacked a responding officer around 11.20 a.m. By the way, he's still in his purple vestments and, and swinging free. Uh, striking him in the face, causing minor injuries. This according to the New York PD. Chisholm was charged with assault on a police officer, burglary, criminal mischief, resisting arrest, and obstructing governmental administration. It was not immediately clear if the suspect was taken to jail or to a mental health or for a mental health evaluation. Seton was the first person born in the U.S. who was canonized by the Catholic Church. The daughter of a prominent Manhattan couple, she was or she founded the nation's first Catholic girls' school and congregation of religious sisters in Maryland in. 1810. So essentially, this guy broke in and jumped out in the middle of Seton Hall swinging a Seton balls. You see what I did there? But a bunch. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I also, w- one of those why I never got lucky in high school. So moving on. There you go. See, I, I waited all program for that one joke. <clears throat> uh, and I ruined it. But- no, no, you, you're fine. You're fine. Uh, you were. Way too nice, you know. You take this Minnesota nice thing just way too serious, you know. Yeah. You've got to do like East Coast, like, oh, yeah, well, should I do this or should I go screw myself? You know, I mean, <laughs> Speaking of screwing, that's our last story. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, we, we kind of opened a little bit with it in the beginning of the program. We closed with it at the end. We're going to Florida again. That's, oh, how, we, that's how we wrap up the uh, the program. Daytona Beach uh, has some seedy parts to it, but uh, we found the seediest of all this past week, Bob. A duo is busted for sex on the beach. We're not talking about the drink. We uh, were talking about a couple of youngsters, Anastasia Kretcher and Alexander Dillman, (laughs) an appropriate last name. 
Uh, Kretcher is 19, Dillman is 26, and they were arrested after lifeguards reported seeing them having sex in front of families and other beachgoers in the middle of the afternoon on a Monday in Daytona Beach. Wow, you'd have thought they'd have waited till the weekend. Right? I mean, celebrate something for, for, for God's sakes. I mean, don't, you know, Monday afternoon, it's... Yeah, come on, you know. Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight. Sorry. <laughs> Boy, that's an oldie. Um, yeah. One lifeguard reported that Kretcher and Dillman had intercourse for approximately 15 minutes. Uh, way to go, Dillman. Uh, near his watchtower, the other lifeguard said that he observed the male erect penis penetration. The female, or this is this is a direct quote, so don't get me for improper English. This is what it said, that he, quote, observed the male erect penis penetration, the female's vagina. That's, a, that's the direct quote. Does that make any sense to you? Well, I'm, I'm kind of getting the whole concept, but at the same time, I'm thinking, was he doing play-by-play? Was he reporting <laughs> this? I mean, did he have to wait a long time? I mean, was this something that, I mean, look, I'm just going to wait here till they finish, and then when they're done, we'll probably um, I just, you know? I just hear Cosell's voice when I read this. Observe the male's erect penis penetration, the female's vagina. Oh, the tragedy. The- oh, the... Oh, the devastation, the humanity. <laughs> wow. Uh, Kretcher and Dillman left the beach after being contacted by one of the lifeguards. <laughs> well, if that all it took. Uh, the, yeah, what? the pair was busted after a sheriff's deputy encountered them at the top of a nearby stairwell in complete nudity. So they stopped. Yo-ho! They didn't put clothes back on. They just went, nah, let's go. Wow. Okay. The, the first names of these two people, they sound almost as if they are, again, from, you know, like Russia or somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, that or something, and I don't know what her name was, but, you know, oh, we are not allowed to do this on the beach. We do this on the beach in Russia all the time. Yeah, but you don't do it in winter, do you? Sorry. <laughs> That's true. Uh, both Kretcher and Dillman were charged with indecent exposure and misdemeanor and booked into the Volusia County Jail, where they remain behind bars now. Dillman was also charged with resisting arrest for allegedly refusing to get in the squad car. It's Florida in the middle of summer and probably leather seats. I'm not getting in either. I could burn my bum. (laughs) Or anything else that happened to be... Right. You know, I'm just saying hot seats in the middle, you know, right on the boys is not not a good feeling. Uh, Kretcher is facing the hot pocket, doesn't it, buddy? (laughs) Kretcher is facing an aggravated battery account or count rather for an earlier incident Monday during which she allegedly struck a female acquaintance with a metal beach umbrella tube. Oh, no. The victim told cops that Kretcher, who is known as Molly, had acted belligerent. What's that? He's known as what? No, she, she, Molly, the Kretcher, the girl. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, had acted belligerent and exposed herself to beachgoers all day. Darn. You know, why do we miss these things? I don't know. We, you know, we live in the wrong part of the country, I guess. Uh, but, you know. You know, we Florida, but the problem would be that we're in Florida. That's right. That's right. In May, Kretcher was arrested following a bloody altercation with a male friend at a Daytona Beach resort. So she's got more than one thing going for her. 
Uh, The victims told cops that his relationship with Kretcher has been of a sexual nature as they film adult videos together. However, neither party views their relationship as dating. The man claimed that Kretcher bit him in the groin and punched him in the head. They call it foreplay. I should give one of those. Uh, While the bite caused significant injury to his genitals. Ouch. Yeah. Can you can you say Lorena Bobbitt? Sorry. <laughs> the victim told police that he did not believe it caused any permanent damage. Well, thank God for that. Uh, well, bat- he would. What's that? He would know. Well, he would know. Yeah. Uh, battery mm. and aggravated assault charges were dropped when prosecutors declined to pursue a case against Kretcher in that instance who recently moved to Florida from her family's Ohio home, which is the Florida of the North. <laughs> wow. Well, we're going to get weird now. We're moving to Florida. Yeah. Okay. Have a nice time. Yeah. So that does it for today's Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. I figured we'd end it with a bang. (laughs) Oh, so you're not going to do anything about the story about the duck, huh? Well, you want to bring up the duck? We can. We can. I I mean, that's... You you were going to tell the story about the duck. I'm just saying. That's one toke over the line, sweet Jesus. We can tell the story about the duck. Uh, You've got... I've got the story. You've got the story. Which one wants to tell it? I would prefer that you do it, actually, because you're so much more professional. And and I have a a life that I have to try and maintain here in a very small town. (laughs) Okay, then I'll tell the story. By the way, this one does come from, uh, from Bob. So, uh, yeah, it, it, he sends me this story earlier today and says, I somehow don't think you'll be able to uh, <laughs> be able to work this one into the program. And I said, oh, watch me. Uh, originally, I wanted to read this to Barbara Butcher, but then I figured the interview was going so well, I'm not going to be the one. He <laughs> <laughs> just didn't want to bring it down, you know, and, and I'm willing to just grovel in the mud at any time. So, well, the, I was going to bring it up in the, in this context because there's in the book, there's a, a section where she says, you know, she's bringing up uh, her birthday is on Christmas Eve. And she says on oh. Christmas Eve, she likes to um, reflect on the fact that, you know, even though there's so much evil in the world, that maybe there's a little bit of hope on Christmas Eve. And that okay. we get to see the good in the world and and maybe there's hope for humanity yet that not everything is so evil, right? And I was yeah. going to, you know, that, that the human race is, you know, one of the, is probably, you know, at the top of that evil chain. And I was going to say, not so fast, Barbara. I got this story from my uncle. <laughs> and then I was going to read the story, right? Figuring, because right. she's got a good sense of gallows humor when it comes to things. <laughs> <laughs> well... Here's the story, folks. Necrophilia among ducks ruffles research feathers. We'll end it on this note today on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. The strange case of the homosexual necrophiliac duck. And by the way, it has nothing to do with sexuality. It has everything to do with the necrophiliac and the fact that the duck rapes. That's that's what it has to do with with uh, this case. I'm, I'm with you're there we're gonna we're just waiting for you to ruin your reputation Got yes it. that's right I'm, I'm gonna throw myself on my sword here um the strange case of the homosexual necrophiliac duck pushed out the boundaries of knowledge in a rather improbable way when it was recorded by dutch researcher keels Mel- i believe it's meliker or maliker uh, okay. It's it's one of those fancy Dutch pronunciations. Uh, it may have ruffled a few feathers, but it earned him the coveted 
Ig, Ig Nobel. Ig Nobel uh, Prize for Biology awarded for improbable research. And next week, he will be recounting his findings to UK audiences on the Ig Nobel tour. <laughs> I believe Van Halen was on that tour at one time, the Ig Nobel tour. I brought some demonstration along. So Yeah. Uh, ducks behave pretty badly, it seems. It's not so much that up to one in 10 mallard of mallard couples are homosexual, which is interesting. No one would raise an eyebrow in the liberal Netherlands, but they regularly indulge in attempted rape flights mm. when they pursue other ducks with a view to forcible mating. <laughs> <laughs> rape is a normal reproductive strategy in mallards, explains Mr. Melliker. Rape... <laughs> Rape, to read this just makes me feel awkward. Rape is a normal reproductive strategy in mallards. Kind of weird. Hey, yeah. but you, hey, go with it. I mean, see, I, this is why I didn't think you would end up reading this, because I, I thought this is going to make poor Jim's going to be so uncomfortable. Well, I mean, in one, I don't know that it's completely funny, but it's awkward. I mean, it's dumb. But you haven't gotten to the good part yet about what how this all happened. Right. No, we're getting to it. We're, we're not stopping here. Yeah, I'm interrupting. No, we're not stopping here. Oh, no, 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 Bob. We're going. I would say we're going to go all the way. We're going all the way, but that's a, oh, that's a really bad mallard rape joke. Uh, smoke them if you got them. That's right. As he recounts in his seminal paper, the first case of homosexual necrophilia in the mallard Anas Platter-Reinkos. I believe it is. He was in his office in the, oh, why do you give me all these names? Uh, Nature Museum Rotterdam. Uh, okay, look at it. What it means is the Nature Museum of Rotterdam. Okay, Nature Museum of Rotterdam. Uh, when he was alerted by a bang to the fact that a bird had crashed into his glass facade of the building. That was the other reason I was going to read it to Barbara was because she talks about when a, when a human body falls from a, 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 a huge distance, like when mm -hmm. someone commits suicide off a building, she talks mm -hmm. about the sickening bang that the body makes. And we had yes, talked about suicide earlier in the program. So, it, uh, yes, a horrible splotting sound. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, he said, I went downstairs immediately to see if the window was damaged and saw a drake mallard uh, lying motionless on its belly in the sand, two meters outside the facade. The unfortunate duck apparently had hit the building in full flight at a height of about three meters from the ground. Next to the obviously dead duck, another male mallard in full adult plumage without any visible traces of molt was present. The f <laughs> oh, God. He like that matters, okay? Yeah. Uh, he forcibly pecked into the back, the base of the bill, and mostly into the back of the head of the dead mallard for about two minutes, then mounted the corpse and started to copulate with great force, almost continuously pecking the side of the head. Well, thanks, Jack the Ripper. He was, well, officer, he was a scruffy duck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa. What a sick duck. Yeah. Rather, I mean, not the act itself, but the fact that it was dead, this necrophilia thing going on. Yeah, he was like, oh, easy target. I mean, it, 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 weird. Rather startled, I watched the scene from closed quarters behind the window until 1910 hours, 710 at night. During 10, it's one of the deals where people are watching. 
Well, I'm just going to wait and see what this duck does now. It's been 25 minutes, so you know. I mean, it's like the, it's like the people on the beach in Florida. They're just standing around watching. You know. Yeah. It's like keep entertainment. Nobody thought to chase this duck off. Just just get out of here. Hey, man, you duck, go away. Uh, during which time, which by the way was 75 minutes. Good lord. He watched this duck for 75 minutes. 75 minutes. Okay, there's something wrong with the, with this guy as well. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, he's he's not right in the head. Uh, I made some photographs and the he took photographs. It's going to probably appear on some porn site now, you know. It's like oh well. And he'll make a million bucks off it. So <laughs> deadducksdoingit.com is the uh, yeah. yeah. Dead duck. Uh, I, he said, I made some photographs and the mallard almost continuously copulated his dead. Oh, God, no. Uh, he dismounted only twice. Oh, thanks for keeping track. Uh, why do I have why do I have visions of a gymnast going, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, okay, I'm done. Let's do it again. <laughs> oh, time to mount. Time to dismount. <laughs> he... <laughs> He dismounted only twice, stayed near the dead duck, and pecked the neck. But it, and he stuck it at the end, didn't he? Oh, they stuck that dismount. <laughs> and the side of the head before mounting again. Oh, God. The first. This is strange how you watch the Olympics. I'm just saying. Boy, he wrote a report, too. The first break at 1829 hours lasted three minutes, and the second break at 1845 hours lasted less than a minute or less than a minute. I've got a vision of Howard the Duck having a smoke, you know? It's just like a in the middle. <laughs> At 1912 hours, I disturbed this cruel scene. Oh, thanks for the help. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, the necrophiliac mallard only reluctantly left his mate. When I had approached him to about five meters, he did not fly away, but simply walked off a few meters, weakly uttering a series of two-note rab-rab calls. The conversation call of Lorenz, 1953, he says, I secured the dead duck and left the museum at 1925 hours. Why? Because you, you weren't finished with it? Wow. Uh, Maybe he could be a guest sometime. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Um, Bring the The mallard was still present at the site calling Rab Rab and apparently looking for his victim, who by then was in the freezer. Why to preserve the evidence? <laughs> no, he's with the other guy who couldn't find a handle to open the damn thing to get out. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Oh, hey, look at this. Sent me a little friend to share. <laughs> Mr. Oh. Melliker suggests the pair were engaged in a rape flight attempt. When one died, the other one just went for it and didn't get any negative feedback. Well, didn't get any feedback, he said. Oh, he's his own comedian. Well, there you go. I mean, you know. Wow. His findings have provoked a lot of interest, especially in Britain for some reason, but no other recorded cases of <laughs> duck necrophilia. In this just in from the BBC, two ducks, both male, have been found copulating, one of which was dead at the time. <laughs> However, Mr. Melliker was informed of an American case involving a squirrel and a dead partner, although in this case it is not known whether the necrophilia observed was homosexual or not, as the victim had been run over by a truck shortly before the incident. That would be a truck sexual. That's right. Okay, there's only one problem. Check this for me, if you would, please. I don't have it up in front of me. Was this AI written? Because I, th I was looking at things that were drafted at the time. 
And the reason I say this, you can look it up on time. The reason that I say this is because they refer to the duck as a homosexual. The word homo, Latin, it means man or male. So it can't be a homosexual duck. Uh, Because it would be a man. How do I go? It can be. How do I go about finding out if it's an AI written article? It would just say at the top. Just the very top of the article. It would say this article is written by AI. Which would have no concept of how things are supposed to be done anyway. That's probably why it's generating it. Well, it's it's got a byline by Donald McCloud. (laughs) I don't know. That could be. But I'm just saying that, you know, let's learn how to use the English language and try to properly identify something. I mean, there has to be some other way of being able to do it. And I know that's me being ridiculous and obsessive about it. But having written as a reporter for so many years, I would not have called him a homosexual duck. A duck. I would have thought that was insulting to both ducks and homosexuals. Well, like Bruiser says, if it, if it is an AI article, AI is, is both racist and sexist and, and it's just plain mean. So... I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past AI to to write an article like that. And let's let's face it, Bruiser brings us back to our more morality and to our center, because he is actually the one who has the normal, sane, intelligent outlook on life. That's true. Wow! And here we are, just a couple of little fat guys with glasses on talking on a podcast. <laughs> That's true, too. I hope that Bruiser is feeling better, too, and, and, he's in, and all the things that he's had done. And, and uh, I just hope they used the genuine GM parts when they did the surgery and he got the extended warranty. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I hope so. he did, too. Uh, he needed one more week. I know that um, it was a difficult surgery. He'll, t- he'll talk to us about it when he comes back. Um, there is, uh, if you go to his social media, there's a there's a, a, a an article there that... Um, that you can read about the surgery. Uh, we'll talk to him more in depth about it. Uh, hopefully he comes back next week, but th- there was some, there was some uh, difficulty to the surgery and he'll, he'll describe what that difficulty was exactly, but it had to do with a lot of necrotic bone in the, in the hip. Um, and, uh, and the fact that he, I'll just be honest with you guys right now. He's not able to sit for a very long time to be able to do the show. That's a lot of what sure. it is. So, sure. okay. so yeah, yeah. It, it, well, we wish him best of luck and all good things. And if people can send notes, preferably hundred dollar bills, um, it would <laughs> wonder them to do it. Um, I'm, and, sure, uh, I'm sure he'd appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you know, positive reinforcement. So yeah, but all the for, for uh, pleasure. And you bring up a good point, actually. You know, he does have a uh, he does have a, sh- a, a store at ProWrestlingTees.com. It's ProWrestlingTees.com slash Beer City Bruiser. Uh, you can go there. You can buy a T-shirt to help support uh, Bruiser uh, after surgery because it's an expensive surgery. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, Pro Wrestling doesn't afford you to have a great pension. <laughs> there is no, no such thing as a pension when you're an independent contractor. Um. So uh, if if you would support Bruiser by buying a T-shirt, if you if you would like, so uh, he's and he's got some really cool T-shirts out there. So yes, there was a thing many years ago where the uh, wrestlers had protested with uh, Vince McMahon because they did not have a health care plan, they did not have retirements, and that was you know that's the ultimate of height in, in the wrestling world is to be is to be at that level. Yeah, and I think that they negotiated something, but all the other guys that you see out wrestling, uh, they don't have all these. Oh, there's. These pro- there's no union in WWE. There's no, no and there's hair or any of that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, because of their passion for their uh, their sport. Yep. So. Yep. 
uh, tomorrow, Supernatural News. And I believe uh, on Wednesday, we'll be talking about uh, contracts, life contracts, and and how we come into this world. Uh, a lot of times we, we talk about... Um, our expectation for our life is it destiny is it uh does it have anything to do with uh do we make agreements with ourselves before we step into this life so we'll, we'll talk about that with our guest on wednesday so that's what we've got coming up for the week and there you are there you are that's that's the week ahead given up on expectations i'm just gonna grovel in the dirt like i always do <laughs> well I don't know about that. So that's the uh, that's the week ahead here on Darkness Radio. Again, if you have a, a guest you'd like to hear from, just send me a note at Tim at DarknessRadio.com. By the way, Parashare. If you have a Parashare story for us, you can send it to Tim at DarknessRadio.com. Or if you want to send us a voice note, just go to DarknessRadioShow.com. Click on that blue button that's on the right-hand side. Leave us up to a two-minute voice note. If you need more time, click that blue button one more time. Leave us another two-minute voice note. I'll stitch them together. We'll play it right here on the show. And uh, there you go. That's how that works. Don't push the red button. For the love of the Lord, don't push the red button. We'll all be gone. That's right. The red button's bad. The blue button's good. Uh, That'll do it. Do you have anything to promote, Bob? Come on. Thank you for letting me come on here and do this and interrupt you and and, and be so uh, terribly. uh, But uh, you've got a podcast to promote here, too. I'm giving you your opening. Here we go. uh, It's just a little podcast. It's uh, Urban Legends and Stranger Truths and it's uh if you look on tiktok you can find it there easily um just look under urban legends and uh there's a, a variety of stories there about all kinds of different things some of them are uh, uh paranormal and others are just uh, kind of weird and uh i enjoy it it's just a little thing you know it's not the big show like we have here i don't know i don't know about that it's a great it's a great podcast it's a great bite-sized podcast to start out your day you need something quick to start out your day interesting facts uh, really interesting facts and 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 great things, little tidbits to uh, talk about around the water cooler. It's a great podcast to start your day out. So there you go. Thank you. So uh, with that, let's wrap up our program again tomorrow. Supernatural news and parish air, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening today uh, to the program again. Barbara Butcher's book is in the description of this program. Pick it up uh, and and give it a good read. It's a good book. It's uh, again, it's one of those books that has got some disturbing stuff in it. It's got some inspiring stuff in it, and we want you to check it out. But th- we want to thank Barbara Butcher for being on the program today. For Bob Dennis, I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for joining us today on the best in true crime podcasting. This has been True Crime Tuesday. <laughs>